around and especially to the stakeholders from civil society who are here for the public hearings. Um, just two little announcements for those of you who are here for the first time. One is that um, obviously 10 minutes isn't enough, but unfortunately uh, we have a three-hour limit because of the bandwidth available in Parliament. But as we have said before, for those of you who were here before, uh, we um, read collectively all the documents that have been submitted, your written versions, and uh, we don't draw any conclusions until that's been done. And secondly, what we advise you to do, it's your choice, is by Thursday or the very latest Friday at noon, uh, if you can give us a half a page to two-thirds of a page maybe, summary of what you think the key points are rather than us choosing for you what your key points are for our report to Parliament. So having said that, is Joe Maswangani the co-chair here? I'm sure he'll join us shortly. Uh, he might want to say a few words, but in the meanwhile, let's get going. Uh, any apologies? I know Zukiswa on the side of our committee is unable to come. She's been put off sick, I think. And Dikaledi explained that she's got... Uh, uh, interrupted power services and ability to function through a uh, Zoom meeting today. Uh, in Kuleleku, is anybody else who reached you? <clears throat> okay, um, we didn't receive any other apology. We have six members. In there. Okay, Alan Wickham. Morning, Chair. Alan? Uh, no, yes, morning. No, nothing from Standing Committee on Finance. Okay, and the Chair will be here shortly. Yes, he will. Okay. Good, let's get going. Fiscal study group it is. Uh, Honorable Mita, Chair. Sorry, yeah? yeah. Honorable Mita. Yeah, I did Apologies. mention that Zukiswa. Yeah, I mentioned that. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, fiscal study group. Uh, good morning. Yeah, go ahead, please. I'm going to monitor, uh, you know, through the phone here, 10 minutes, yeah. But you're very good. Uh, so I don't think you'll have any problem. Hi, welcome again. Good morning, Chairperson. Uh, very nice to see you again. Good morning, uh, committee members and ladies and gentlemen. And as always, thank you for the opportunity to address you. Dr. Fani Hubert will elucidate our presentation this morning. Uh, I will hand over to him in a minute. However, in this opening remark, I want to stress the point that South Africa is becoming the Republic of State-Owned Enterprises. Given the fiscal challenges, emanating from state-owned enterprises and the repeated funds given to state-owned enterprises over many years, therefore taxpayers funding state-owned enterprises. It is for us a major concern, however, that we cannot find a complete list of all state-owned enterprises in South Africa. Some sources claim there are 132, other sources claim there are 712. We simply don't know. Nevertheless, we cannot do a proactive review of these state-owned enterprises to see where the next problematic one might be waiting, the next one that will ask funds from the uh, fiscus, because we simply don't know who the, where to find these state-owned enterprises, and they might demand funds from taxpayers. We therefore make a very strong recommendation that the National Treasury should publish a complete list with at least the names of all state-owned enterprises with the next MTBPS review in October this year, so that we can analyze 
the state-owned enterprises so that we can know which ones we have in South Africa. Having said, said that, I now hand over to Dr. Hubert to do the presentation. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you very much, uh, Professor. So, um, colleagues, if I can just get an indication if you can see my presentation on your side. Yes, we can. Thank you very much. Okay, so in general, if I can get right uh, to it, uh, this is the budget deficit for the last uh, 20 or so years in South Africa. And what we can see there in 2008-2009, uh, after the global financial crisis, um, of course, we had the first real uh, major budget deficit there. And at the time, the, the budget speech uh, mentioned counter-cyclical fiscal stimulus was used in that year to support the economy. Unfortunately, if we look at what happened after that, it seemed that as if this relative large deficit has become entrenched in the budgeting process in South Africa. Of course, the problem there is that it continues uh, debt to accumulate and of course, debt service cost, which is becoming more and more of a problem. So again, as we mentioned, as we stand now, the, the expenditure continue to rise relatively strongly over the medium term, as well as debt. Uh, this olive is evidence of a highly expansionary uh, fiscal stance. Uh, however, the problem is that at this stage, we believe that South Africa has reached its uh, fiscal limit. Uh, so there is really, uh, it's, it's, um, it appears as if it's austerity, but in, real, in the real case, we are simply at debt levels where we can no longer, no longer afford this. Then if I turn to public sector institutions, uh, Prof already alluded to this in the introduction. Now they are intended to operate as sustainable businesses and to generate profits and that they can uh, borrow on the strength of their own balance sheets. Also, these companies have extensive borrowing powers compared with other public entities. Um, the problem, of course, is that if we look at uh, what has been happening with a lot of these state-owned uh, enterprises, that they are simply not uh, living up to that uh, idea and that in the, the reality is it is costing the fiscus a lot of, a lot of money. So, again, we are... Uh, questioning these extensive borrowing powers and whether it's time that this should be normalized for a lack of a better word. Um, thank you. Next, if I can go to the civil service remuneration. Now, we have been very vocal about this point for a long time. Um, what we see here is that in the 2021 budget, there was no increases for civil service was announced. Um, and then in the current, the, the, this 2022 budget, it mentions an, an annual rise of 1.8% uh, per annum. However, what we find a bit uh, worrying is that if we look at the, the figures, now there I've just compared the, the medium term forecasts for the, the compensation or the remuneration uh, budget over the last three years. And as we can see between 2020 and 21, there were quite large cuts announced in the, in the 2021 budget of around 60 billion. But now if we look at the, the latest budget, that last black uh, line there, again, we see that uh, it looks as if that 60 billion over the medium term has simply been put back into the, into the budget. So of course, at the end of the day, this is what the, the civil service actually cost the, the fiscus. And this is the figure that we look at. Look at. And uh, it's a bit worrying to see that these previous tough talks on the, the, the um, remuneration bill is now looks like it is simply being reversed in these figures. 
Now, again, a very important uh, point to make, um, the potential growth rate of South Africa, also referred to as the production capacity of an economy, uh, or the maximum amount of goods and services that can be produced when the economy is running at its full or most efficient uh, capacity. And what's very worrying there, if you look at the blue line in the, on the right-hand side, you will see that South Africa's potential growth has declined from around 4% in the early 2000s to only about 2% or 1.5% currently. And this is really uh, the crux of the whole uh, uh, budget and the budgeting process. The reason why this is so important is that uh, state revenue and GDP correlates very strongly. And as long as we are not getting growth, we are really going to struggle uh, to get revenue going. Again, if the economy was running at 5 or 6% per annum, uh, it is very likely that we as the Fiscal Cliff Study Group would not even be making this presentation because there will be enough revenue. The problem is we are in a very constrained fiscal situation. Now, to get to my uh, to the part that we have always been uh, looking very strongly at, the fiscal cliff we define as the point where civil service remuneration, social assistance payments, and debt service costs will absorb all of government revenue. And if we look at the ratios uh, in 2007, this ratio was around 50, 55% of tax revenue. Um, it increased to 75% in the February 2020 budget. And in, at, at the medium term in that year, it was more than 100%. Luckily, it has come down a bit. And uh, of course, now it's standing back at a, about 75% of, uh, of tax revenue. Uh, of course, cognizance of the, the um, windfall in the revenue that we received during this, uh, this latest uh, period in the budget. Um, to, to save time, I'm not going to go through the details, just to say, uh, that the latest forecast, it's that blot, uh, black dotted line. And as we can see, it has come down slightly compared to the previous year's budget, but the trend is still upwards after the budgeting period. Now, just uh, on previous occasions, we, we talked uh, to this committee about the central and provin provincial governments should only purchase vehicles manufactured in South Africa. <coughs> Um, and this was also supported by this committee. So we were just wondering uh, if, we, if there's possibly any feedback uh, on this point that we previously made. And then uh, lastly, what we would like to, to show you is the, the taxpayers per the different uh, income categories. And in 2002, currently there is around 608,000 uh, individual taxpayers that falls into the top three income tax brackets, or that earns more than 750,000 rand per annum. Uh, these tax I'm going to end up just now, Chair. Um, they make up about 50% of personal income tax and almost 20% of, of total government revenue. Um, so we just make the point that this leaves very little uh, room for further tax increases, especially on the, the high income earners. Um, thank you, Chair. For the sake of, of time, I'm not going to go through the recommendations, which just uh, reiterate what I've already said. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. We've still got about a minute left, but that's great. Um, South African Institute of Chartered Accountants is next. Are you here? Yes, I'm here. Thank you, Chair. Oh, of course. Yes, welcome again. <laughs> thank you. I'm just busy sharing my screen. Can you see my screen? Yes, we can. Perfect. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members. It's, it's great to be here again, and we do appreciate the opportunity. I will be using my full 10 minutes, so please bear with me. I have got my timer on, so I will stop uh, at 10. I might use 30 seconds extra, seeing we've, seeing we've shared uh, saved some time. Um, so let me start off straight away. Um, I'm going to start off with the committee's mandate and fiscal framework, give you an overview of that. And then we're going to look at the concerns in respect of the budget revenue, the estimates of revenue, expenditure, borrowing. And I'm going to end off on the oversight and accountability, who's responsible for that. And hopefully this will help Parliament ask the right questions um, and impose the required consequences. So what we know about the budget is that it is government's plan to tell the people of the country what it does with the tax revenue that it collected. Now, in terms of the constitution, parliament is required to represent the people to make sure that the executive is held to account to what they put in this budget. Now, the mandate of the two committees sitting here today is to either approve or amend this current budget. And it can only do that if that budget is credible in terms of the fiscal framework. Now, what is this fiscal framework that we're all talking about? Well, it basically consists of your estimates of revenue, expenditure, borrowing, interest and debt, service costs, contingent liabilities, and, contingent, and the contingency reserve. And I'll, I'll be looking at all of those. Now, before I carry on, I've got, I want to pose two questions to Parliament, and I don't want any answers now, and I just want you to think about these questions after I've gone through my presentation. And the first one is, is Parliament meeting its constitutional mandate um, to ensure that there is accountability and credibility of the macroeconomic and fiscal policy framework? And secondly, is it holding the executive to account on behalf of the people? But let's delve into the budget itself, and I'm going to start off with the estimates of revenue. If we look at the, I've got three concerns, and it's starting off with the tax-to-GDP ratio. Now, this ratio, as was mentioned before, is a good gauge of the tax that comes from the economy that government can use to fund all government expenditure. And as we can see from this, it, it's set to go up, and it's going to stop at about 25% in 24-25, and that's going to become relevant just now. But another concern that we picked up is that, obviously, this is increasing, the tax revenue is increasing, but we have weak economic growth. Even if we look at all the way in which this figure is calculated, we've got some concerns. I used the same year for different entities. Everybody came up with a different number. Treasury, of course, being the lowest in this regard, and, and that will become important just now. So what we think Treasury is doing is they excluding the SARCU payments from this calculation, which we feel is incorrect because it actually is taxes imposed on the government. And so is the UIF, RAF, and COIDA levies that should be included as well. And that will give you the actual total tax that is extracted from the economy, and that should give you a ratio, which is very different to what uh, National Treasury is using, for instance, in the 2022 tax year. So the question we're asking, is this methodology correct? And it's an important question because back in 2000 or 1996, the CATS Commission recommended that there be a ceiling to this tax to GDP ratio, and it is recommended 25%. So that rings a bell now. Um, back then, the Joint Standing Committee, as we're sitting here today, they said they broadly support this 25% ceiling, but they wanted more research done to determine the effect on the economy if that 25% ceiling was instituted. So our question to, to the current uh, Joint Standing Committee of Finances is, has this research been done and what was the outcome? Because it's important to know whether the level at which the high taxes or the level of taxes, if it's too high, and is that going to affect the economy? And if this research hasn't been done, why not? We know OTA did a, a paper on this in 2018, and we need to agree whether or not there is, if this level is important, and if we've overachieved or overbreached it or not. We then move on to the revenue estimates. Now, what we're seeing here is that revenue is going up year on year. 
Now, the buoyancy, tax buoyancy and elasticity is not, and neither is GDP. In fact, it's going down quite sharply and then starts to pan out. Now, the concern here, and as has been admitted by National Treasury, is that we have a trend of overestimating our revenue and economic growth. Now, the impact of this is that it affects our budget, because if our expenditure continues as is, but the revenue isn't realized, we land up with a deficit. And this deficit then needs to be funded by more debt. And so it's absolutely critical that we get our revenue estimates as accurate as possible. Another concern that we've picked up is that uh, where is this tax revenue actually going to come from if we're considering that the uh, GDP is going to reduce? And will this be increased tax rates? So our questions are, again, are these numbers reasonable, um, a reasonable estimate, estimate, estimation of the tax revenues that we're going to be collecting? And if we are going to collect this tax revenue by tax increases, is Parliament satisfied? that this tax is going to come from a very small tax base uh, with very bad economic conditions. And as the minister himself mentioned in the budget speech, that tax increases have not delivered the desired tax revenue that was expected. Now, on the point of optimistic revenue forecasts, to collect this tax revenue, we need an effective and efficient SARS. However, Commissioner Kisveter last year said that SARS is underfunded by 9 billion rand over the next three years. And this is our concern is that it's going to also further implement grant implementation. Now, National Treasury has said that they will engage with the commissioner on this. But in the meantime, what we are seeing is increased taxpayer dissatisfaction with SARS, not only with the electronic systems, but also with the continued lack of accountability and oversight. And this is not only affecting taxpayers' compliance costs, but also their compliance behavior in a negative way. Now, we did note that the minister said that the Nugent Commission recommendations have been uh, almost implemented. And it is concerning that we haven't seen a public paper on this yet as published, as, as promised, um, because taxpayers were directly impacted by the lack of governance at SARS. So again, is Parliament satisfied that SARS has sufficient resources to collect the tax revenue that it says it needs, considering that it has to take taxpayers services into account so as not to affect their compliance behavior in a negative way. Also, is Parliament happy on the progress or the lack of progress uh, on the implementation of GRAP and, and what is the reason for the delay? And again, is, SARS, uh, is Parliament satisfied with SARS's um, service delivery to taxpayers at the moment? Moving on to expenditure, there's a few concerns here. The first one is the expenditure ceilings. We set them, we then lower them, and then we bring them back up again. So our question here is there's consistent breaches. Is that acceptable? Um, is the budget credible based on these ceilings? And what is Parliament actually going to do about it? Another concern that we have is that a lot of government departments and, and municipalities are spending more than 10% of their following year's budget, meaning that when they come to the next year, they're actually starting, they've already spent part of their budget allocated to them. And our question is, is this not going to impact service delivery? And is Parliament happy that we're allocating more resources to, to departments and municipalities that have consistently not operated within their budgets? And is this acceptable? One thing that we raved last year again and still have the same concerns of the unbudgeted expenditure, luckily um, based on the court case that came out on Monday founding in favor of governments, not the unions, uh, there is a, a 43 billion odd saving or not an unbudgeted expenditure that has been incurred. But we do hope that this court case finding prompts government to agree the wages before the budget is actually finalized. As we said, we've still got concerns of the SAE's liability, contingent liabilities, becoming liabilities, the health of the municipalities, the water and sanitation infrastructure that is really dilapidated, 
The legal liabilities against various departments, including police, education, and health, the GAPF underfunding, and then I just want to touch on the police funding. The minister promised 2.9 billion rand for wages increase, wage increases next year, and 6 billion rand up until 2025. Now, if we take these increases into account and inflation into account, you'll actually see that the, this department is worse off. Uh, in 2025 than it was in 2022. And then the question is asked, how will we fund the additional 12,000 recruits that the minister, the president promised in the SONA speech uh, earlier this year? Another concern that we have is if we looked at the appropriation budget, we see that uh, uh, um, the police is allocated 100 billion, yet according to the budget, it's 110 billion. So we're not sure if there's a difference between police and police services. So we, we welcome any, any input on that. So again, is the budget credible considering that these expenses have not been taken into account and how are we going to fund additional police officers that we desperately require? On this point, uh, we look at the VIP protection. They've currently been allocated about 3.4 billion odd. But if we take into account that- Carol, you're at eight minutes, right? But anyway, yes, I know, I've got it there, no. don't worry. Okay, right, fine. Thanks. So we've got the NPA um, who's got a budget that has to ensure justice for 60 million people compared to 3.4 million, which will be expenditure incurred on a handful of dignitaries. Now, again, is this what people are going to view as parliament approved? We need to really seriously consider that. Same with the contingency reserve. Are you happy with how it's being used? What are we going to do when there are actual emergencies? With the debt, as I said, considering all the concerns with revenue expenditure and budgeted expenditure, we don't feel that the, the debt estimates are accurate. And neither is the debt service cost, considering at the time uh, that the war in Ukraine and Russia was not uh, on the cards. And I don't think that has been factored into this particular budget. And that leads me to end off with oversight and accountability. Who's responsible for all of ensuring fiscal sustainability? Now, the Constitution gives various parties rights, and the Parliament has the right to, as I said, either amend or accept the budget. Um, but so does National Treasury, and they have the right to withhold funds where there is serious and material breaches um, in respect of Treasury controls. And I will be finishing off now. Um, so our question is, if you look at the audit findings, a, serious, a large, significant number of entities are sitting with qualified audit reports. And the question is, is this serious and persistent non-compliance? And is it acceptable? And why has Treasury or should Treasury not be compelled to be doing more? We know they have started implementing this, but should they not be implementing this across the board, considering the poor disregard for financial management? Thank you. Actually, Sharon, you are very good. I'm at a steam train today. Yeah, I'm... so we, we owe you uh, the extra 10 seconds. Remind us, uh, <laughs> next time. Okay. Uh, look, I hate doing this in case you, it's not excess of power, really. It's, it's, it's really quite a tiresome technical thing, right? And I hate being a police person, a uh, fiscal study, a cliff study. I've said this before. Is that something, you know, you, you people think politicians like exercising power. What power? This is like I'm a secretary, you know, I'm not secretary, so I'm, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm like an automatic machine. Now your time is up. The issue is about fairness. So, you know, if we give somebody 11 minutes, then somebody else feels muffed. Okay, that's what it's about. Moreover, the point is to engage with you. Uh, uh, that's what the point is. The more time we have to engage with you, the better. But you'll always come back in your reply. So having said that, can we move on next to the Institute of Taxation, please? Where are you? In Kulileko, are they here? Here. Uh, yeah, go for it, my friend. 
Okay, I'm going to try to be excellent. Ah, like there you are. Yeah, we, we, we meet the same people all over. You're probably bored yeah, with us. Yeah, sorry about that. They're not I mean, bored with you. Yeah, okay. Good. Well, well, you could be bored with me. I mean, I try to put something different on, but they, were, they weren't interested. So you're stuck with my face. I, I put a beard on there for you, so I look a little different. That's all I can do. <laughs> good seeing you again, Chair. Okay. Yeah, um, we're uh, Where we are, so we move quickly along. I think, let me just say, you know, I think the other presentations are excellent. I think the real issue here is we are in a very, very difficult situation. And I must say the Treasury continues to understand that. I mean, I will applaud Treasury for that. We've had various ministers in the last several years, um, and they all are pretty much coming to the same conclusion that we are at the fiscal edge and that you see an effort to show restraint. And so what you're seeing is we're not only at the fiscal edge from a government point of view, but from a taxpayer point of view as well. So the fact of the matter is um, we did get inflation relief under PIT. I think we support that. Um, we're trying to keep up with inflation. I can't say it's the most generous, but I think that's all they could afford. So to be fair to them, I think they're, they're doing the right job there. Um, and the bottom line is when it comes to personal income tax rates, what you saw with the 608,000 is we are at the edge. And unfortunately, we're at a bottom edge and a top edge. At the top edge, what we're facing is increasing amount of immigration. And we are seeing that. I know a lot of people involved in that business. And we're really there at a point where you're seeing a middle, more or less, at, at an edge. And so the PIT relief is supported. Um, and I don't think there was any more money. Now, when it comes to the corporate income tax rate, I think this was Tito Mbueni's idea. The goal was to get the rate down to be more competitive. I don't think rates by themselves make you more competitive. Um, but the question is, is, will this rate change help? So we're dropping it to 28 to 27. I think to be meaningful, you really have got to get it down to 25. The real issue is that we're offsetting that by limiting people's losses. And unfortunately, we're limiting people's losses in 2023 at the same time we're cutting the rates, which sounds good on paper. The problem is you're helping the winners and you're hurting the losers. And right now, there's still a number of companies that are still coming back. I would have delayed this another year. Um, that would have been my approach, or maybe to delay the, you know, keep the losses now and then delay, the, then have the rates go down. But I think they're pretty much committed to that course of action. Um, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of fiscal room. And, and is corporate tax rate the right way to stimulate it, or we need other aspects of the economy? The issue about excise and sin taxes. Now, when we look at excise and sin taxes, that's always an easy one to raise, and that's why governments like them very much. But I really do appreciate the minister's decision not to bump up the fuel, because frankly, that hits the poor and the low income. Um, and that we just can't do that anymore. We can't go after the low income that way, just like we can't go after high income. We've got to keep after both. We are at the edge. Sin taxes, look, we always throw them up. I think the problem is, is enforcement. They're not that inelastic. I think the theory is, well, we can always raise those taxes and get the money. But increasingly, people are going offline. So I'm not sure how realistic that is. But overall, when it came to the rates and everything, I think everybody applauded what the Treasury did. I think the real problem is, is what you're hearing from the prior presentations is we have so much fiscal pressure built up in the system. There is this ever-present uncertainty that Treasury will suddenly cave 
and raise rates significantly, and people are already beyond their limit. And I think, so every year we're breathing a sigh of relief that Treasury is keeping a sane pulse on the policy, and it's appreciated. But there's a fear that that, that sanity could come to an end. Okay, next slide. And I will try to keep it in. If you, if I'm going over, you let me know. Incentives, let me move quickly. Look, there is this hope that if we just get rid of all the incentives, we'll have enough money for something else. So there has been this review for the last two, three years. You will see on the budget review, they knocked a few of them off. I will tell you that the ones they knocked off were meaningless and hardly used anyway. So the question is, can we get a lot of money out of incentives? I think we can get a little bit of money out of the normal incentives. Um, but not much. And unfortunately, we seem to be pushing onto incentives now that aren't really that exciting, but they're really depreciation incentives for investing in capital. And those are not really considered classic incentives in the normal sense. Those were instituted in the early 2000s, where we have 12C for manufacturing. We've been trying to have our manufacturing and production incentives, and it looks like they could be reviewing those. And frankly, those incentives are not abused. And they are trying to stimulate productivity in the, in the manufacturing sector. And I'm not really sure if that makes a lot of sense. But we, again, it would be classic tax policy. But I think that most countries give relief for depreciation on an accelerated basis. There's the R&D incentive and the few of them. So when it comes to incentives, I do think that a number of them should be removed. Others need to be more carefully refined. I see they're looking at R&D. Um, they've had experience with it now. It looks like they're going to carefully refine that. I think that's good. Energy efficiency, that incentive should be linked to the carbon tax. But those incentives, I think you can carve them back, adjust them, but I don't think you're going to get that much money. And that's the problem. The easy money is gone. And that's what will put the pressure on the revenue service. So overall on the incentives, generally supportive of Treasury's position, but I don't think they're going to get what they want out of it. Next slide. Tax research and reviews. Um, look, I think there's a number of ones going on here. Uh, there are a number of reviews and discussions, which is appreciated there. Um, again, we've moved to a remote economy, so they're taking a look at that. I think we support it. Um, then when we, one issue that we do see on PIT is they adjusted for inflation. But I do think there's a growing concern that you don't just adjust the personal income tax rate for inflation. There are other monetary thresholds. And those things are all listed out separately. And really, the bottom line is a number of these monetary thresholds, especially when it comes to retirement, they haven't been adjusted for inflation. And what happens is you're putting high income caps to make sure the high income people are out. But as you don't adjust, you start adversely affecting the middle income taxpayers. And unfortunately, you know, we don't have an automatic adjustment policy. Now, again, I know Treasury's looking at that. We'll see what happens there. Um, provisional tax system, this is always a sensitive one. We spend a lot of time on it. Um, I think we're looking at asset-based approaches. I'm not sure where we're going on this one. Provisional taxes, I tend to be in favor of, but sometimes we spend too much time enforcing them than the final tax. So that's just a small thing. Um, issues on retirement system. I know that we keep looking at retirement and we remain confused. On the one hand, we want people to get access to their money early. On the other hand, we're not so sure. And I think we continue to be confused whether we want people to have access or not. 
Now, on the one hand, we don't want them to have access to retirement, so they're not a burden on old age. On the other hand, if people are unemployed, they need the money now. And I, I think the policy remains conflicting, and I think it's just going to stay that way. You'll see a lot of people will quit their jobs solely to get retirement money, which is a problem. Um, and, and that has to be addressed. But I think we really are not sure what we're doing there. So let me move on to the next slide. I'm just trying to keep my time there. I think the big issue here is tax administration. Now, let me say before I go into a rant. It's now at eight minutes. Eh? How much? Yeah. We've got eight minutes. So let me just wrap up very quickly. Thank you for that. Um, I must say that the commissioner, I think, is doing an excellent job. I must say, I think he's, he's really doing a great job. Um, it is a very, very difficult position where he's in. And I see when you're looking around, he's, he's making the right moves. So as a general matter, what we are seeing is there are inroads on the non-compliant. You are seeing it in the papers. There are people that they're going after that have fallen off the system and they're getting them on. I think people want more. It's the same issue like the Zondo Commission. Where are the big fish? I don't know if that's source to blame. It might be NPA. But if we're going to get more money, I think we need to get it from the people who are wholly non-compliant. And that leads to the next issue. The worry we do have, and I think Syke alluded to it, is that sometimes SARS, and this has gone over for many years, is looking for the easy money. And that's the semi-compliant. The people are mostly compliant. And then they're, they're picking off things like invoices, failure to do refunds, and all of that. And there's a tendency for that machinery to roll over the innocent who will just give up quickly and pay. And unfortunately, not only tax systems, but criminal systems around the world go for low-hanging fruit, which is really hitting the mostly compliant. And so the tax ombud has come out with a, bill, um, um, a draft of taxpayer rights. And I think this thing is long overdue. We do need to protect taxpayer rights. We need to do it in a way that we don't corrupt to protect the corrupt. But we do need to protect taxpayer rights so people are not being steamrolled. One other issue you'll hear about is the VAT reverse charge. There's a bunch of issues on VAT on gold. And while we understand there's criminality on gold, we do question whether the, the proposals are getting the innocent as opposed to the guilty and whether the prosecution is getting the innocent rather than the guilty. And so I think that's, that remains a concern. And let me hit the last slide. I think I'm almost done. Yeah, you have 10 minutes, but fine. I you think can finish done. off. Done. Oh, you're done. done. Excellent. Excellent. PWC. Thank you very much, uh, Keith. PwC, please. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Ellen, have you got our slides that you can share? Uh, yes, uh, Carl, I have. I'm just waiting on Brittany to uh, take her slides now. Keith, we can still see your screen. Thanks for co-chairing, Cheryl. Sorry. <laughs> I'm teasing you. Okay, here it is. It's on. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Um, uh, if you could just skip straight to the next slide, please, Alan. Thank you. Um, so just a few general comments from, from, from our side. Um, first of all, we, we, we certainly welcome and we fully support the continued uh, commitment on the part of Treasury to avoid tax rate increases. Um, by expanding the tax base through through economic growth, employment, and enforcement, um, 
that to, to, to our mind is a crucial aspect of where the, where we're going from a budget uh, budget perspective and, and talks to, to to some of the issues that Sark was raising a little earlier as well. Um, we fully support the objective of fiscal and debt consolidation. Um, we certainly are, think we're on the right path insofar as that's concerned, at least from a, uh, an intent perspective. So the purpose of this presentation is really just to highlight some of the areas where we do have um, some specific comments and concerns. And let's go to the next one. Thank you. Um, so there are a few risks um, that have been highlighted in the in the budget documentation and which we want to just re-emphasize, if you like, as part of this presentation, because they certainly are very valid and real risks. Firstly, on the revenue side, uh, the risks around lower commodity prices and the impact that that will have on corporate tax revenues, particularly obviously out of the, uh, the resources sector, uh, remains uh, a concern. We have been conservative in terms of the revenue projections, which I'll come to in a moment, uh, but the, there is some inherent risk insofar as particularly corporate tax revenues are concerned. Uh, same thing from a, from a GDP, GDP growth perspective, uh, with risks around power, in, power interruptions, potential new COVID-19 variants, and a risk, if you like, has come to bear uh, since the budget, and that's obviously the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we don't know at this stage what impact that will have uh, on the global and local uh, economy. On the expenditure side is probably where the biggest risks lie. Uh, we certainly see in this year's budget that there are, well, one that's been highlighted already, that there has been a slippage uh, insofar as the expenditure ceiling is concerned, a significant slippage, a significant increase in expenditure ceiling over the, over the course of the medium-term expenditure framework period. Some of those risks are not fully encapsulated as well, uh, certainly in the, in the two outer years of the, of, of the medium-term expenditure framework period. Uh, and those particularly relate to the risks around uh, the SRD grant uh, potentially becoming permanent, uh, the public sector wage bill, uh, and potential for uh, additional state-owned enterprise support uh, as well. And although we have got a, a reserve in, of 55 billion rand in the two outer years of the, of the medium-term expenditure framework, uh, that in itself would not even uh, be sufficient to fund a, uh, the SRD grant being made permanent, which would cost in the region of 50 billion rand a year. So, so those remain significant risks, um, and particularly from a, a, a how the question is how do we fund those expenditures if they come to bear? And unfortunately, we're sitting in a situation where we've got temporary increases in the, in revenues as a result of the commodity super cycle that we're currently in, um, and and those permanent expenditure increases cannot be funded with temporary increases in revenues. They will need to be matched by either a permanent increase in revenues or permanent expenditure reductions elsewhere in order to make space to fund those, uh, those, uh, those spending pressures, which, as I said earlier, we consider to be very real. One mitigating factor is that the budget has been conservative uh, from a revenue forecasting perspective. And, and on that note, I think we can go to the next slide, please. So in terms of our analysis in terms of, of where we expect revenues to go, uh, certainly in the current year, uh, we've seen the Treasury increased its, uh, its forecast of, um, against the original budget for 2021 um, by 182 billion Rand. 
in our view, that is still conservative. Um, and based on the January numbers, which we saw uh, come out a couple of days ago, uh, we certainly expect that we could see uh, that uh, that surplus reaching as much as 220 billion rand. But it's certainly looking likely that it's going to be well in excess of the 182 billion rand surplus that uh, uh, that Treasury has forecast for the current year. Of course, that has uh, not only has positive implications for the current year, but uh, has positive implications for for the knock-on base effects, if you like, looking forward to to next year as well. Um, and again, even with uh, without taking into account those base effects, Treasury has been conservative in, in 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 its revenue forecasting. Uh, it's only budgeted for a 3.3% increase in tax revenues. Uh, for for next year, uh, and and, for, and corporate tax forecast to drop by by some fifteen odd percent as well. So very conservative, um, but I think given given the risks that we face that that I highlighted a little earlier from a revenue perspective, it's understandable uh, why Treasury will be taking this prudent approach. Next slide, please. Yeah. Uh, just in relation to the corporate tax rate reduction, Keith did touch on, on, on this a little earlier. There are some concerns that have arisen, and, and I'll try and highlight those as quickly as possible and, and as clearly as possible. So back in, in uh, during the course of, of considering the, the, uh, this or last year's uh, Taxation Laws Amendment Act, um, in its final response document, which was only issued on the 25th of January this year, Treasury indicated that those base broadening measures in the form of the expanded interest deduction limitation and the limitation on the use of assessed losses would be postponed to create space for recovery. In the, in the Act itself, the effective date of those measures was directly linked to the announcement of the rate of the rate reduction in, uh, in in the budget itself. So, with that rate reduction having been announced in this year's budget, uh, with an effective date of years of assessment ending on or after 31 March 2023, in effect, the the stipulated postponement that Treasury indicated in its response document has not come to to, to fruition, um, and seemingly, uh, it, uh, it, it, the, the, those base broadening measures will come into, into effect on the same date as the rate reduction comes into effect. As I say, that is the that has the effect that uh, there's been no postponement, um, and the reasons for that remain unclear. Now, whether that's uh, an error on the part of Treasury or it's a deliberate backtracking of what their position was uh, remains unclear and uncertain. And we would certainly like to see an explanation and clarification coming from Treasury in, 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 in so far as what their intent is. And if they've backtracked, why have they backtracked? Uh, as Keith was alluding to, there are, are, are companies and particular sectors, not least of which, of course, is the hospitality and entertainment sector, which has been severely impacted by the pandemic and are sitting on extraordinary losses uh, over the course of the last two years. They are going to be, amongst others, the big losers here, while the profitable companies um, remain the big winners, insofar as this is concerned. So the timing is, uh, 
uh, is open to, to question and debate. It also appears that, the, the, that there's uncertainty given how that effective date was stated in the, uh, in, in the in Taxation Laws Amendment Act as to when those base broadening measures actually do come into effect. Is it at the same time as the rate reduction or is it in effect a year later? And I think that's something that Treasury needs to go back and look at very carefully as well. Kyle, you're at eight minutes, but go ahead, please. Thank you, Chair. Um, sorry, can we go back one? Just to finish that uh, previous slide, thank you. Um, Keith also just touched on the last point I want to make, and that is around where we're going from a tax rate reduction, corporate tax rate reduction perspective. Um, we, we certainly agree with Keith's position and size position that we should be looking to get to a, a corporate tax rate of 25%, again, on a revenue neutral basis in order to be uh, to, to make it a, a real and, and impactful. Um, but we would be looking for, for some indication from Treasury in terms of, well, what is the targeted tax rate? What are the proposed timelines to get there? And what are the base broadening measures that we have in mind? Uh, as Keith alluded to, there have been some base broadening measures, although those are, those are pretty negligible in terms of the impact from a revenue perspective. But we're looking at base broadening measures that are potentially significant, not least of which uh, are the BEPS proposals that are coming through and are, and are referred to in this year's budget as well. What are Treasury's intentions around those? That uh, we need, we need some guidelines in terms of where it is we're going with these rate reductions. Next slide. And just to 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 wrap up, just in terms of some of the other tax reliefs that we've seen, and to to perhaps reiterate uh, what what Sart said, uh, the fiscal drag relief is welcomed. Uh, we certainly think that's appropriate in the circumstances. Uh, and will go a long way to, to leaving, alleviating some of the burden on, 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 on personal income taxpayers. The uh, expansion and increase of the employment tax incentive uh, is welcomed. Uh, the expansion of the eligibility criteria for qualifying employees is welcomed, although it remains unclear what is meant by in that regard, and we certainly look forward to engaging with Treasury in, in that respect. Um, and to also in line with what Sart said around the fuel levies, we certainly welcome uh, the decision to keep those, uh, those at the current levels uh, in the current context uh, and faced with choices in terms of where Treasury could have actually provided tax relief. Um, that in our view was the, the most appropriate uh, place to, 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 to give that relief in the current circumstances. That's me, thank you Chair. Thanks. Slightly over 10, but great. All four of you have been great. I thank you very much. You made my task much easier. Now it's over to members. Let's see how many hands are up. Then we can decide how we allocate the time. We've got about 40 minutes. We have to give the um, four of them the opportunity to reply. Just to remind everybody, on Friday we meet again. We're Treasury who's here and noting everything you're saying. We'll respond to what you've said. And then you get a chance to reply to them, and then they'll reply to you. Then we throw it open for discussion. So we've got another slot of three hours on Friday. Right. Who's here? Uh, I don't see. Oh, yes. There's Dion, as, as I see it in the sequence here uh, on my screen. There's no particular reason apart from that that I mentioned his name. Then there's Dennis. Then there's Willie. Well, there's only three people. Wow. Well, strictly you can have... Uh, up to five minutes each if nobody else surfaces, but up to three minutes for now, we can come back to the three of you if there's nobody else who wants to speak. Go ahead in that order, please. Thanks very much, Chair, and thanks very much for the presentations.
Um, to the Fiscal Cliff Study Group, um, you raised the question about tough talk on managing the public sector wage bill. Um, now, we all know that that was just talk and that there was actually no action to contain or reduce it. Um, what I would like to know from you is, have you done research on what size reduction we need on the public sector wage bill if we are to avoid the fiscal cliff as you define it? Um, I know there's a number of variables that um, are in play, but I would be very interested in that. And then, Saika, um, you asked a number of very interesting and thought-provoking questions. Um, and if I read those questions correctly, it sounds as if you were saying that Parliament is not effectively holding the executive to account and that the tax to GDP is too high and climbing. Are you proposing tax reductions? And if so, where would you cut first? Or are you particularly concerned about the levels of irregular expenditure that occur without consequence? Because they obviously work hand in hand. And then to the SA Institute of Taxation, you mentioned that tax incentives for investment were not particularly successful. I mean, we, we, we saw that was actually so, was not successful at all. How would you achieve more success on this? And um, particularly if we consider that a significant amount of money is available in the economy, but not invested. Now, we also know that the way the economy will grow is if you attract investment, both local and foreign, and also if you encourage domestic savings, because the more people save, the more hopefully will be available for investment. So what would those incentives actually be? Because, I mean, there's been a, num a lot of discussion on it, but they certainly don't seem to work. Um, thanks very much, Chair. Thank you. You know who's next. There's no need for me to intervene. Uh, Thank you very much, Chairperson. Yeah. Um, good morning, everybody. Thank you for the presentations. Um, and I'm not going to interrogate each each of them, but I just want to appreciate the fact that the, the presentations have come here and a lot of work has gone into them. And they give us some thought-provoking things to to tackle going forward. So they actually make our jobs a little bit, bit easier as we as committees uh, take them forward and help us to ask the right questions or the right people in the right places. So I, I, I certainly just wanted to voice my appreciation. And I think uh, um, Dion has, has adequately uh, covered uh, the questions that came out of Saika's presentation, which, which leave us um, a little bit of time to pause for reflection on our role. Um, the, the one presentation I'm going to ask a question on is, is, is Mr. Engel's presentation from uh, SAIT. Um, uh, and perhaps not necessarily a question, but emphasize and maybe ask for further input from, from, from his side, and perhaps from the others if they choose to, to, to give their, their, their inputs on this. But the current um, yeah, balance of power in the relationship with SARS that many people are struggling with. And um, Mr. Engel spoke about taxpayer rights and the fact that, that people and, and, and entities have been steamrolled by SARS. And as much as I think we're applauding the work that SARS is doing, and make no mistake, I think that, that all of us are currently grateful for the fact that, that SARS is 
uh, on the road to recovery and doing a particularly good job uh, under the circumstances, um, over collecting, um, perhaps as a result of, of, of the uh, economic upturn in, in specific sectors, but uh, also because of the fact that there's a little bit more discipline coming back into SARS um, and, and people are getting back to doing what they're supposed to do there. I think that uh, uh, the com commissioner is, is, is certainly on the right track from my perspective. But this issue of, of, of taxpayers feeling that they're being steamrolled. Now, on the one hand, I think, and, and I know that the chair has voiced this in the past, that people don't really like to pay tax, so they kind of avoid it as far as possible. But effectively, I think that there's mature enough relationships with many taxpayers and certainly with, with business entities where they understand that there's a need to pay tax and they understand that there's a need for relationships with SOS. However, the balance of power in that relationship is currently very, very skewed. And whenever you as a business lodge a query with SARS, you get the response, well, hold on, 21 days. Um, and after 21 days have expired, uh, you might, or you probably won't, uh, get an answer. So then you escalate it. You, you get advised to escalate it. And then there's another 21 days that are given for the escalation process. Um, if you don't get a response after 21 days from the escalation process, or if the response is inadequate, you then are advised to uh, lodge a complaint. That complaint period is 21 days. Okay, so now effectively you're pretty much three months down the line uh, and you haven't resolved your issue yet. And this has particularly become uh, an issue around uh, some of the larger VAT refunds where there's audit requirements, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, it's really problematic when a small business is out of pocket for three to four months um, on, on, on the basis of, of these investigations. And really, the, uh, the two aspects I want to pick up on is the fact that firstly, SARS seems to be very reluctant to communicate via email making it quite difficult to establish a paper trail um, and also making it difficult to, to kind of have a, uh, a sequence of events which is easily referred to. Um, and, you know, when, when SARS takes a decision, uh, it's very often not the case that you have 21 days to respond. You're required to respond in a much shorter period of time. Uh, and if you don't, well, the big stick comes out um, and, of course, hits you in the back pocket. So, um, yeah, I, I just want to, to, to place that, uh, that matter on the table um, and perhaps to appreciate Mr. Engel's inclusion of the fact that taxpayer rights are something that we really need to, to consider. Oh, and of course, then we've got the ombudsman that also gets involved. But guess what? 21 days. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Dennis. Uh, because it's a joint meeting, I sent you a WhatsApp note, which I otherwise would have mentioned if it was an NCOP meeting, in the committee meeting. Okay, Willie. Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, Chairperson, yeah, firstly, I want to thank all the presenters for excellent and uh, presentations. And you can see that there, as Dennis said, there was a lot of hard work that went into it. So thank you so much for that. I wish we had more time uh, to dissect it and to be informed by you on this as well, and hopefully we can arrange that in the future. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, firstly, uh, to the Fiscal Cliff Study Group, with regards to 
The list of the state-owned enterprises, I fully agree with that. We need to get a full list of those state-owned enterprises, and I think it is extremely important that we look into that list <clears throat> Sorry, and, and check where there might be possible future uh, risks for us as a country where we might bail out, because we do not really have a proper idea of all of that. Uh, it is the... In Afrikaans, they say this the clean yakos is very afbrand. We must look at all those small things that can have an effect on our if, uh, SOEs in the future. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Hubert, you dealt with debt service costs. We have discussed that in this committee on numerous occasions, and I think everybody is extremely worried about the trend that our debt service cost is going to take. We heard yesterday that uh, if all our guarantees are realized with regards to state-owned enterprises that in 2025, we can have a debt that is equal to our total GDP. So that is very worrying. Uh, and my question and what, what you actually said there is that uh, we must limit the ability of state-owned enterprises to borrow money. If they are just going to borrow money all the time, we will have a larger debt service cost. Uh, again, and I've asked the question yesterday, <clears throat> I'm doing it again today. For state-owned enterprises that have been managed very poorly to be in a position where they are now, what would you think would be the best turnaround strategy for your SOEs? Should we carry on with the current path and the current management and the current business uh, profiles that they've got? Or should there be a proper interference of, of really doing introspection into those state-owned enterprises and changing the business models completely? And again, uh, from our side as the Democratic Alliance, I'm going to propose and I'm going to ask you, what do you think the effects of privatization in those state-owned enterprises are? Most of those state-owned enterprises are losing value day by day as we speak. They can still now be sold into the private sector because there are assets that are worth something and that can then assist those state-owned enterprises within the private sector if it's privatized to turn around and really become an asset for us. Uh, if we are going to wait, my opinion is that they will lose value and at the end of the day, once this government comes to a point where they want to sell it, they might not have any value to sell it for anymore. So I would like to have your opinion on that. Then to any one of the uh, uh, presenters, but it might be the physical study group or psycho, I think I'm in there. I've got a very big worry with regards to the fact that the war currently going on in the Ukraine has not been worked in into our budget. We do not know what the effects of that war will be. We know that fuel prices might increase drastically. And once fuel prices increase, we know that everything else follows on the day. going as high as 50 rands within a very short time. We do not know that. Uh, what would you suggest? What do you think the influence of this might be? Or is it too early to say with this regard, in this regard? To come to Saikam, yeah, Ms. Malders, it's very, very worrying if you see that your VIP protection is getting almost as much as your National Prosecuting Authority gets. And we, we uh, agree with you that there's a huge change that must come in there and that it must be done as soon as possible. We need to see that people that are guilty 
or making themselves guilty of corruption that leads to all of these problems that we've got, that they are brought to book. And I think it is a very skewed uh, scale if you look at that. With regards to uh, the unbudgeted expenditure, I agree and uh, that we must one of the biggest points that I agree with you is is the mistake that we made last year, where we uh, did not have agreed wages, but the minister did his budget. And we saw that it came back and that it really turned things around. I think that it is important that we must have in a budget wages that have been agreed. Then the question that I always ask in this committee again is that... Lee, can you round up, please? Because I'll give you another chance. This is my last point. Thank you, uh, Eunice. Uh, we're talking about audit findings and consequence management. But I would like you to, again, just emphasize the importance of consequence management because we don't really see that. We see that municipal managers and uh, MECs and whoever and directors stay in their post even after they've received extremely bad uh, audit findings. I would like to get your opinion on that again. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Uh, Thank you. There was Member Skozana who wanted to raise, uh, raise his hand. Yeah. Yes. Uh, no, thank you very much. Uh, and, and morning to all members and all stakeholders. My apology for not showing my video. My network is very bad. That's fine. That's I, think fine. That, I think that's the reason I, I raised my hand later because he kept on kicking me out. Uh, just to, 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 to Saika, uh, Honorable Chair, I think I see that this year they've taken a different approach of asking questions to us as Parliament, uh, as opposed to asking to the executive. And I think the main question, when I look at their slide and as I was listening to the presenter, I think they are questioning as to whether are we as Parliament playing our required role in terms of the Constitution as far as the issue of budget is concerned and are we holding the executive uh, accountable uh, as far as the issue of budget is concerned? Well, I think we will answer that by saying yes, as far as we are concerned, I think we're doing what is expected. Unless they can tell us our weaknesses, if we do have weaknesses, because I think as, as, as parliament, we're not allergic to criticism. I think if there are things that we're not doing uh, uh, as, uh, 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 in terms of the law, in terms of the constitution, I think uh, psych or any other stakeholders, I think they do have the right to raise those things to say. But I think as parliament, you are not exercising uh, uh, your powers, you are not uh, uh, executing your responsibility in this particular regard. Uh, 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 but if you are going to ask that, uh, that question, I think our answer will say, yes, we are doing that. Because we believe that we are doing what is expected, not unless I think they can convince us uh, 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 otherwise. And uh, um, they are also asking a question, for instance, that says, uh, is the budget credible? Is it accurate? Is it implementable? Uh, I think uh, this public hearing, I think, is part of the broader process uh, which is done by Parliament, I think, to get views from various stakeholders, uh, particularly expect, experts in the field uh, of budget and, and finance and the economy. I think uh, uh, we cannot, we might not be able to answer other questions up, up, up until we get your views 
and we also get responses from the national treasury. But I think if Saika comes and asks us these questions and expects us to answer these questions, I think it's 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 quite a, a, a difficult thing to do because I thought this this process we have invited them and all other stakeholders to say let's have your views, uh, criticize the budget, and then whatever issue that we are going to raise. Uh, the national treasury will come on Friday and respond to them. And from those responses, we will be able to then sit down and look at the issues that we have raised, look at the responses from the national treasury and be able to to take a decision to say, no, we think that Saika was correct on this. We think that PwC was correct. We think that COSATO, whatever stakeholder, raised issues as far as the issue of budget is concerned. This question to us to say, in our view, is the budget credible? Is it accurate? Is it implementable? I think it becomes very difficult because we thought it is you as SAICA and other stakeholders who must uh, tell us that. The last point, Chair, still under SAICA. I think there is a concern about uh, the allocation of more resources to departments and municipalities that have not uh, uh, consistently operated uh, within their budget. I think it's a very uh, crucial uh, point. But I think as we deal with that point, I think we should also uh, reconcile it also with the issue of service delivery. That as much as we 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 were doing this, we're looking at the issue of service delivery because uh, and the service the aim of the service delivery is for our people, is for our is for the people on the ground who are supposed to get services. So I think we, if 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 people who are supposed to implement or to spend budgets are not spending the budget as expected, they are either not spending the budget uh, fully, or they are not uh, uh, following uh, the necessary uh, accounting laws and stuff like that. I think we should have other mechanisms to deal with that. But for us to say, because a, a certain department of certain municipality was an, failed, is failing to, was failed previously to spend its budget, or perhaps is getting in terms of the auditor general, they are getting disclaimers and adverse audit opinion. Therefore, let us not, let's give them less allocation. I think people are going to suffer, innocent people on the ground who are not responsible for that. So we should find other mechanisms to deal with the issue of uh, uh, of inability by departments and municipality uh, of being unable to consistently operate within their budget. But to say, let us therefore penalize them by giving them less resources, I think it becomes unfair to the to the poor masses on the ground who are supposed to get services from those municipalities and from those departments. So I think as we deal with that particular point, which is a very critical point, but must also look at the issue of service delivery and to say this delivery of services is aimed at the people on the ground, not at those people who are sitting in offices who are supposed to execute this particular budget. Thank you very much, Chair. Since there aren't any other uh, takers, can I be very quick? Firstly, I like, uh, Professor, so your, your comment, Republic of State-owned enterprises. Although you're falling into the, into, the, into the laps of the left, you see. I mean, that can become a slogan to say South Africa needs to uh, have a more powerful uh, state-owned economic sector. But fine, uh, your request that National Treasury must 
list all SOEs seems eminently sensible to me. This has been requested year in, year out, not of National Treasury, but of DPE. So this is something, members, can we please apply our mind to? Myself, uh, the co-chair uh, might want to offer a view and others later, but it's something we should put down in our report instead of waiting endlessly and having endless debates. What's wrong in doing that? We also need to know, as does the Portfolio Committee on Public Enterprises, um, <clears throat> what is the full list of SOEs? I think it's far larger the, than uh, you you suggest, uh, Professor Russo, but I could be wrong. On the matter of cars, co-chair, I mean, this is a matter maybe we should talk offline. I have phoned you, Professor, and explained to you we've written in every time. I think we should put it back in our report. I think this time we should go to the DG, uh, Baleni, Pindile Baleni, and, and raise this. Now, I have explained to the committee before and or Professor Russo but my understanding is that we cannot impose on the executive that they buy all their cars locally. But we can demand an answer. We've put this in our report, we've written, we've spoken to the parliamentary council of the president several times. He promises a reply. I get acknowledgments, which I think I've forwarded some to you, Professor Rousseau. But this thing cannot drag on. The presidency has to reply to parliament. It's simple. It's our constitutional imperative. It's our right. We can't impose it on them. But having heard the president speak in two or three sonas now about buying suits locally, ourselves fully supporting, as does the Appropriation Committee, but buying South African, I really think this is an eminently insensible thing for them to reply to, even if they say, no, we don't agree with you. I have reported to you that a cabinet minister explained the issue has come up in cabinet, not because of our letter, but because of other reasons. Well, I think Chairperson, Co-Chairperson Masangari, we should put this back in the report because it's still an outstanding issue. It's really embarrassing. <clears throat> on the chartered accountants, yeah, I like Sharon, your snazzy PowerPoint presentation, and you asked Mr. Skuzana's reply to you. But obviously, uh, as I understand the position of the ANC in Parliament and outside, we should be holding the executive to more vigorous accounts. I don't think we will disagree with that. Uh, I think my own view remains that, uh, and within the ANC, we will have slightly different perspectives depending on our trajectories and years in Parliament and so on. There's no harm there. We're a very broad movement. Uh, my own view for what it's worth is that, you know, we have been doing more in holding the executive to account than is made out in the public domain, even if less than we should be doing. Uh, but you see, you can't ask this question of us because it's not just these two committees. It's the two appropriations committees and then all the committees of parliament. As you know, people seem to think that sometimes that this is the be-all and end-all of the oversight of the budget. Of course it isn't. It's a six-month process. And, and, and it ends when we vote on the budget in the third week of June. Now, every other committee will do a budget review of their own respective uh, committees, uh, our portfolio uh, ministries and departments over the next few months. And yes, we could improve, but no, it's not as if we're as lame duckish as some of you imply. I'm not saying you do, Sharon. Um, on raising questions about the statistics, I think what you're basically saying is you don't buy them. Well, we too sometimes don't buy them, as you've seen in our reports. We have consistently said that some of their projections have been consistently long on economic growth. Colleagues, comrades, you'll remember in our reports. So we agree, it's dependent on what you're raising, as Kozana, Mr. Skazana, colleagues, Kozana, raised. Depends on what you're raising. 
some things we agree with on them and some things we think they're wrong about. Um, on the Newton Commission, uh, Treasury is here, SARS is here. I think it's correct. If you, Treasury, have said the Ismail is here, Momoniat, and I think Yang Amputa is here. If you have said you're going to do it, as I recall, a report on how, how far you're going to go and what exactly you're going to do to implement the Nugent Commission, can we please have a report? When will you do that? Can you reply on Friday? Uh, on Keith's inputs at the fiscal edge, yeah, we heard from the FFC yesterday the relationship between today and tomorrow. So, you know, the way it came across to us, unless I misunderstood, is that we are being sort of cautious and modest and temperate today, but it's going to mean bigger consequences for us next year in the budget, not only in terms of taxes, but in other respects as well, as several of you highlighted. Um, I, I think I agree with, with you, Kyle, about the forecast of revenue being conservative, uh, but I'm not an expert in the way you are. So, so you know, I won't say much more, but I do think that uh, they are being quite conservative. Uh, having said that, can we go back to you? We've got 12 minutes. We've got about 13 minutes. If, if the four of you can take about three minutes each or slightly more, maybe four minutes each, we'll spill over into the next half. Uh, Comrade Masungani, I, I, I think, you know, today we've got more submissions than we usually do. Uh, for oral uh, presentation, and maybe we need to look into extending it for an hour uh, if we have more than a minimum number of submissions, uh, because now we squeezed and people have to leave at 12 and so on. So can we look into that offline, but colleagues and comrades can comment on that later. Having said that, can we hand over then to Fiscal Study Group? Um, thank you very much, Chair. Um, and thank you, Mr. George, um, for the, the question on the size of the reduction in the, the wage bill. Um, I think the, the simple answer there will be to uh, say that we will need to see nominal growth in that uh, uh, value of 0% over the next three years, which will, of course, lead to a real decline in the, the wage bill. Um, I think just important to also note there is that that line item, com compensation of employees, um, we've did some analysis on that. And of course, there's various inputs there. For example, changes in wages uh, itself. That is the, all the negotiations that we read about in the news. But then, of course, the changes in the actual employment numbers, as well as things like notch increases, salary levels, uh, promotions. So the problem is that once you, you, you look at the, the overall line item, then you have to delve deeper and you have to go and look at where changes can be made. And in the past, we've also been very... Uh, we, we raised the point about the executive or the top top structure being too heavy in the in the salary or the compensation bill. So, uh, yeah, I hope I answer your question. But in short, we that is that is the answer. And then also um, important that is just um, that we need to keep in mind that this is a ten or fifteen year problem that has been brewing. I mean, we know between two thousand and nine and twenty twelve, when the economy was for parts of that going through a recession. This uh, compensation bill was rising by average 15% per annum. And it's all after this period also that we picked up this problem. So again, this is a question of something that happened 10 years ago that is really, you know, sort of biting us now, if I can say it like that. So, yes. Uh, then on Mr. Ocamp, just the, um, he raised the point about turnaround strategies for, for SOEs and then also the, um, the interest, uh, the 
debt service cost, uh, interest cost on the on the debt. Um, so in short, um, again, we, we agree with that. And then also what is interesting is that we see in the budget, they talk about the primary budget surplus. Uh, but for us, that's a bit of a nonsensical argument to, to strip out the debt service cost that we need to pay because it, it's becoming such an important part of the expenditures. And then also, uh, I think in, in short, if we can say a one turnaround strategy or we will at least have to look at the salaries in all the SOEs. Again, what part does it make? But we haven't done that uh, that research yet. Then, uh, of course, the, that that links to the, the the clarity in the budget about the list of the SOEs. Uh, if I may share just two extra points that we also think will help with with, with clarity is around the the senior rich sharing agreement between South Africa and some of our neighboring countries. We know that there's also a strong development component built into that, but again, just for clarity, so that we know what is South Africa paying on that. And then also in the past, we raised the points about uh, SACU payments and exactly you know, how that, uh, that formula is made up, just again, so that we have exact uh, clarity and, and we are able to plan. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for for, 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 for for being so quick. You had so many questions put to you. Look, the other thing, uh, Co-Chair, that we, 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 we I think in fairness we have to do, um, the majority must decide, is, is uh, Sharon raised this thing about us having said we're going to do research on uh, what she pointed to. And so can we ask you to write to us and uh, tell us what exactly the issue there is, Sharon? And where did we agree to it? If we adopted it in some report, then we're answerable for it. Uh, we can't say things and then not follow up. So if you can write to us, we have very efficient secretaries. They will trace that and they will consult with the content advisors and researchers uh, whether we mandated PBO to do it. But just to explain in fairness to us, you know, we get flooded with work. And I have often argued in the past Noxie will remember, Dickelady might remember, that we need a third committee really to manage some of these things. Oversight, uh, you know, appropriations and fiscal framework issues are, you know, interrelated, but it's very difficult for us to follow up on everything. We just don't have the capacity, resources, or time or space. So it's possible that slipped us by, but we are accountable to ourselves for decisions we took that we haven't implemented. And so we will come back to you uh, within two weeks of your letter to us. Okay, over then to you, your replies, you. please. Don't exceed thank four you. minutes, please. You can always send written okay. replies. All right, will do. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Karim. Um, if I start with Honorable George's question about the tax GDP being too high and whether we're requesting a reduced taxes, I think that's not a concern. Well, it is a concern, but the concern is we don't know if it's too high at this stage. And I think our concern is not to actually cut taxes. The so taxes have been coming in, but the revenue is not our problem. Uh, the problem is we can't carry on increasing revenue because, um, as we've seen in the past, uh, the increases in revenue are not necessarily going to result in additional tax revenue coming in, or not as much as you expect. Our concern, I think, uh, is more on the expenditure side, uh, where you refer to the irregular expenditure, et cetera, and no consequence management. And there again, none of us would have a problem with the amount that we're spending in our budgets, for instance, say on education, um, which is a huge amount that we are spending on it if we got value for money. And I think that's the concern that we're bringing out and leads us into the whole accountability issue is that we're spending the money, we don't have problem with the spending, but we're not seeing the results. We're not seeing the value for what we are actually spending. 
Um, and, and that then goes, I think, leads into um, Honorable Skorsana's question about, you know, holding the executive accountable. And to, to Honorable Eunice, your, your concern as well that, you know, it's not just this committee, it's the Appropriations Committee as well. And we agree 100 um, percent. And that's why we have been going to the Appropriation and will be going to the Appropriation Committee again, because it cannot all be left up to you. But um, what we are seeing is that Parliament, in terms of legislation in the Constitution, is required to exercise oversight over the executive. And what we're seeing, and I did include in the slides, the executive has various levels of accountability as well. And what we're seeing there along all those lines is that the accountability is not there. Um, take, for instance, if we looked at, we've had a look at three departments. We looked at uh, education, we looked at the uh, um, finance, treasury, and we looked at water and sanitation. And we looked at the minister's performance agreements, which is available on the website for everybody to see. And, and what we saw there, for instance, on their KPIs is that um, there was no dates for some of these uh, requirements. Um, some of them had only dates in 2024 with no interim measures to see whether or not they're actually meeting their targets. Um, some of the targets that were set were more quantitative than qualitative, submit so many reports by a date, etc. But it's what's in the reports that's actually important, not that you've actually submitted a report on time. So has anybody even looked at that kind of stuff? They've been on the website since 2019. And when we started looking at this, we we're thinking, but you know, even if you use this, you can't hold the person accountable. It's not actually doing what it's meant to be doing. We're not going to get the results that this country needs to see based on, on what we're going to be holding our ministers accountable for. And, and has anybody even looked at that and considered that? Um, going even a further level down, uh, talking to, you know, again, to Honourable Kusana's concerns with, you know, you, you can't, there is no service delivery and, and innocent people are going to, to suffer if National Treasury, for instance, does withhold the funds. The people are suffering as it is. Um, and that's the concern that we have, is that we're paying this money and they're still not getting services. We saw communities taking the municipalities to court to get the services, running the services themselves uh, to actually get this. So, so the issue is the services aren't happening. Nobody seems to be doing anything about it. Um, and there's no accountability and everybody keeps blaming everybody. Um, but ultimately, as we understand it, the Constitution puts this responsibility um, firstly on withholding the funds in terms of uh, is in, in the hands of National Treasury. And Parliament is ultimately accountable to ensuring that the executive is what it's doing. And it should filter down from the top. Um, we're trying to do it from the bottom. That's just not working. It's got to come from the top. It's got to filter down. Um, and, and like I said, we don't have a problem with the tax. We don't have a problem with the expenditure. If we are only at three thirty now, right? Okay. Just more, um, so I think, and you can I think written replies. Yeah. yeah. So I think that covers the gist of it. Is is that we do understand it? It is a bigger problem, but ultimately, in terms of the constitution, um, Parliament does have oversight roles and responsibilities that we're hoping um, it will start using. And we, we admit it has been using it, but we needs to be uh, exercised a lot more. Thank you. Yeah, I know that Mr. Skuzana, Commissioner Skuzana will reply to you and you could reply to him. You can have this dialogue off, offline. Uh, just to say, it's not just the Appropriations Committee, which I serve on in any case in the NCOP side. It's the same committee you might or not know. It's all the committees of Parliament that will meet now from next week onwards or two weeks later from then and look at their respective portfolio budgets. So what I suggest to Sharon is send your study to the education and other portfolio committees that you have uh, uh, referred to. Uh, because we, we can't really, you know, exercise any authority over them. We're just another committee. Uh, so maybe you want to do that and engage with them. 
Okay, Keith, over to you, my friend. Uh, no more than four minutes, please. Okay, uh, keep an eye on me. I will try to be good. <laughs> um, let me just hit my, there we go. I've got it. Now I can't seem to get this right. Hit it again. Um, there we go. Okay, yes. Let me be quick. Um, incentives. It was Questions were asked about incentives, how to make them more effective. Let me say incentives you break into two parts. They're business incentives and they're savings incentives. Now, on the business incentives, the problem has been is that there's been a go-alone strategy where Treasury will come up with a, a, an incentive where the rest of the government is not going along. DTI would be the same. If you want to make your business incentives effective, you need to have it multi-departmental. It doesn't help to have a tax incentive and then the regulations are oppressive. One area where you, to keep an eye on is special economic zones. They worked in China, not because it was just tax, but they also gave lots of regulatory relief outside of the normal system. So unless you're going to have an interdepartmental approach on a lot of these incentives, it simply won't work. And unfortunately, we just do these incentives in isolation. And what happens is you're just throwing money away. And so that, that's my main point on business incentives. On savings incentives, South Africa's savings incentives are reasonable. Maybe we can have an education incentive. Maybe we can adjust it a little bit. But overall, our retirement system is pretty good. Um, the only issue has been is that we have not been adjusting it for inflation. So now it's beginning to bite more and more into the upper middle and to the middle class. So that's the concern that you have there. The point to note about savings incentives, though, is that government is conflicted. Because on the one hand, they want to promote savings. But if you do promote savings, you're going to be promoting the wealthier more than the middle and the lower. And so government continues to not sure which way they want to go. Do they care about incentives for savings or are they fair, worried about fairness? So but savings overall, pretty good, maybe small adjustments. History has shown that the most effective savings incentive is retirement. The other ones just shift savings from one location to another. Just to close on savings, though, if you're too restrictive, and we're seeing that now increasingly in retirement, that once people see that their options are limited in this country due to where we are, they shift it offshore. So to some extent, you need to keep some of these in savings so that it stays within the domestic economy. Now, turning to the other issue, which is taxpayer rights. Now, this one is a sensitive one. Now, on the one hand, uh, again, I do believe that Kieswetter is doing a very good job, and I think he's more aware of this issue than prior commissioners. So I'm not singling him out. I think, I think there is more of an effort there than there has been in the past. The problem is targets. And if you have targets, and they do informally or somehow, if you believe as a revenue official, you have to raise so much money, you do it in the easiest way you can. And unfortunately, that often means picking on small things like in customs, we're going over small mistakes on, you know, on invoice, same thing with that. We're often focusing on easy paper wins. And that means we're really hitting the wrong people. And other times at the word with steamroller was used, the sometimes assessments are given People don't agree with them, but it's too expensive to fight it. Better to just pay. And so people feel oppressed. Now, you don't want to have, you know, people being the Stalingrad defense against the guilty, but we need to do something about taxpayer rights. And it comes on several fronts. One, when we're in parliament, we don't spend enough time with tax administration issues. Whenever SAR speaks, 
We find that if we debate the issue, it just gets shut down. We find that basically SARS is very reluctant to make changes. Um, and the parliament doesn't usually have enough time because they're focusing on other issues. So in the parliamentary sessions, we need to spend more time. The second thing is, I would say the tax ombud has been effective. Um, and I think we would like to see them have a little bit more power or a little bit more say. They should maybe be at the parliamentary sessions. They should be allowed to make reports and be a little bit more vocal. I think that would make a big difference. Thank you. I have four minutes now. Please, please. You okay, can my, simply my reply. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. So I think that quickly, is a major issue, and I'll close it. Okay, thank you. Do please reply, because I, I think the majority of us will agree that in the area of tax, as you know, we've repeatedly said this in the last term as well, that's where we need more capacity and so on. But we can't hand over our responsibilities to any experts, because Parliament must find its own capacity. Uh, so please do. Uh, I think the majority of you also, colleagues, as I know it, is that SARS is doing a good job overall, even if like every institution, not least our own committees, we could always do better. But thanks for that. You can give written replies because I think you, you didn't finish uh, so, you know, fully what you wanted to say. So please, pity, sharp replies. We're very good secretaries. If we can get it by tomorrow, I mean, you could do it in your sleep. Then, you know, on Friday, at least we'll have it tabled, right? Thank you. Okay, over then to you, Kyle. Thank you, thank you, Chair. Yeah, I just want to pick up on the on the one question, and maybe it's a it, it's an extension of of uh, what Keith was referring to in relation to taxpayer rights. But I'm going to put a slightly different spin on it as well. So, on, on the one hand, absolutely, there's no question that uh, SARS are making progress, uh, and there have been some significant improvements in uh, in its performance over the last couple of years. Uh, that said, and the Commissioner will acknowledge it, there's still a lot of work to be done in, uh, insofar as that's concerned. Um, the one thing that we do see happening is in relation when it comes to the taxpayer rights, um, and this requires refinement in terms of how SARS goes about selecting individuals for verification audit, is that you do see the same, the same taxpayers year after year, period after period, being subjected to verification and audits. Um, and that amounts to uh, where, where those taxpayers are, of course, compliant and so on, or, or largely compliant and ineffective and inefficient use of scarce resources. Um, what we would certainly like to see is a greater direction of those resources to, to the areas where there actually is a problem, um, as opposed to being used to, to, to go after largely compliant taxpayers. And the issue that I want to emphasise here, uh, and I think this is very relevant when we're talking about the fiscal framework as well, is that we have a very substantial tax gap in this country. We know largely, at least anecdotally, and there's some empirical evidence as well, in terms of where that tax gap lies uh, and how it's made up. But to, to give you some perspective, we're talking about a tax gap by our own estimation, which sits in the region of 4% of GDP, or around about 240 billion rand at the bottom end. Um, as I understand it, SARS's estimation at the top end is about 360 billion rand or 6% of GDP. Now, that is a very substantial tax gap, and I probably don't have to tell you that. Um, we're talking about very substantial numbers here. Our tax gap um, against, well, let's put it this way, no country in the world doesn't have a tax gap. But to give you some perspective on, on, on the sheer size of our tax gap, the UK's tax gap sits at about 5% of, 
of, um, of theoretical tax revenues. Ours is sitting in the range of, using those numbers I've just shared with you, sits in the range of 13 to 20% of revenues, i.e. it's more than doubled um, what ideally it should be sitting at. So if we were able to, to reduce that tax gap just by half, we're talking about tax, additional tax revenues of, of between 120 and 100, 180 billion rand per year. And I don't need to tell the members of these committees what we could do with that, with those additional revenues, what we could use to increase spending where we need to increase spending, or how we could reduce taxes where it makes the most sense and, and, and create a virtuous circle in terms of economic growth and, 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 and tax revenue growth as well, and, and what that would do to our fiscal situation. So I, I do think that the committee should be asking SARS these hard questions in terms of what it is that they're doing. And I know they're doing stuff to close that tax gap. And, and I know they've got ambitions in terms of where they want to go as an organization around being technology enabled and data centric and so on. But in some respects, SARS is losing the battle uh, on certainly on, on, on various elements of that tax gap. And I think there needs to be a hard focus going forward in terms of what is being done to close, uh, as I said, a very significant tax gap. And I think the committees have the responsibility and duty to, to, to ask those hard questions of SARS. And if appropriate, to ensure that the necessary resources are directed to SARS, where it can be effectively and efficiently used for the benefit ultimately of all the citizens of this country. Thank you. Thank you yeah. okay. Please to the next lot, it's road consulting. Good morning, Chair. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Good morning, Chair. Would you mind, with your permission, if I switched off the camera? It does improve. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. You've got 10 minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Chair, the South Africa, we all know the economic position has not improved since we last met last year, and we remain in a debt trap with gross debt projected at some 75% of GDP by 2024-2025, and our real GDP growth for 22, 23, and 24 is woeful, 2.1, 1.6, 1.7. And our unemployment rate has reached the highest recorded levels due to the slow economic growth. And President Ramaphosa in the SONA address highlighted this, and that the state must create an environment to enable the private sector to invest and unleash the dynamism and the potential of South Africans. And we, do, we are a dynamic and we are a resilient society. We've walked up to the abyss, we've looked over it, and we've walked back time and time again. And the gut, the, the, Sona, the speech contained the, the, the observation that government doesn't create jobs, that business creates jobs, and that government's primary task is to create conditions that will enable the private sector to grow, access new markets, and create the much-needed job opportunities. Now, there are blockages in our system. All the blockages at every level of our system. I see it all the time. Investment that is blocked, uh, initiatives that are blocked, economic initi in initiatives that are blocked. But that is the conversation for another day. But one particular blockage which I'd like to raise is the way in which SARS conducts VAT audits and the withholding of that. I raised this last year and uh, 
this concern is not only raised by me, but it's shared by uh, the Institute of Chartered Accountants, the Institute of Professional Accountants, the Institute of Taxation. And last year, the recommendation from this committee was that National Treasury and SARS should engage the organizations to find practical solutions to this particular problem. We had an initial meeting in May with National Treasury, but as far as further meetings with National Treasury and SARS, unfortunately, that never happened. Now, the VAT with audits, with the VAT audits and the way they're conducted and the withholding problem, the VAT withholding problem, is not restricted to the export sector, but spread widely across the economy that impacts small, medium, and large businesses, including businesses and business rescue. And it severely impacts small and medium businesses to the point of insolvency. Now, we've seen what happened. We, this has happened before. We saw this in the so-called state capture era of SARS, where that was unjustifiably withhold, withheld some 20 billion. It's, it was in the Nugent Commission, the SARS officials uh, expressed uh, they had, that they were uncomfortable with what happened. There was a slowdown in, in, in VAT repayments due to manipulate the tax revenue collection numbers. The, the then minister, finance minister, uh, Imbaweni, uh, said it caused a lot of harm to the economy. So just in summary, uh, Chair, there was a recent High Court judgment, and in in ignoring that recent High Court judgment, SARS still believes that it can carry on VAT audits without being held to any deadline. Two years, three years, there is no deadline to continue that, to complete that VAT audit. There's an automatic stopper on all VAT refunds when an audit comm commences and all future VAT refunds for that business are withheld. Um, that SARS may continually keep requesting additional information under, for periods under audit, and never finalize audits. And the, the recent High Court judgment by Honorable Justice Yacoub said that the audit process cannot be indefinite and must be completed in a reasonable time. The order was given that an automatic stopper on all VAT refunds is unlawful, that a taxpayer, a taxpayer is entitled to a refund for as much as it can provide acceptable security. And it's not an all or nothing refund. In other words, if you can provide security for 20%, then 20% of the VAT must be refunded that, that has been withheld. SARS believes it's an all or nothing. You give us all or you get nothing. So taxpayers in the face of a never-ending VAT audit and, the, and, the, and continual withholding of VAT refunds are co a complete abuse of taxpayers' rights. And taxpayers are totally powerless. All they can do is litigate. Their, tax, their cash flows are significantly compromised, uh, and there is no law to compel SARS to issue a revised VAT assessment within a specified period so that formal dispute resolution can, can commence and the deadlines within the formal tax dispute process can be obeyed. So the recommendation, Chair, and I won't belabor the point, uh, I know that the time is an issue, is... The recommendation is that SARS must complete and finalize an audit within four months from the date that the taxpayer provides all the relevant material requested by SARS. That we got guidance from Honorable Justice Yacoub on this matter, on that deadline. Uh, SARS men should not withhold VAT refunds for more than two VAT periods under audit. And this is a recommendation from the Ombud. 
that uh, so what happens is that SARS continue, once you're placed under audit, SARS just so you you come under audit for say January February, your your all your VAT refunds are withheld, and then they roll out audits March April May June. They just keep rolling out orders before the, 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 the audit for January and February is completed. So I should not continually request information to delay the finalization of the order. And at the outset, we recommend that and a, and a deadline must be set between taxpayer and, and tax collector for the audit finalization. And any extension of the audit must be supported by full motivation for that extension. And compliant taxpayers who have clean VAT audit uh, histories, they, they should be able to apply for the release of VAT refunds if they have a proven good compliance record and they can show that they're going to suffer irreparable financial harm without having to mortgage assets and provide uh, unreasonable security. So I should not unreasonably and unfairly place the onus on businesses to control criminality in the supply and distribution chain. That is the, 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 the job of other agencies, the NPA and, 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 and the SAPs and the Hawks. Uh, businesses are businesses. They are not detective agencies. And uh, where SARS believes there's rampant criminality, refer it to the NPA and, and, and SAPs for a criminal investigation. It can't, SARS shouldn't take it upon themselves to be judge, jury, and, and executioner. And so should ensure transparent, standard, non-discriminatory treatment of all taxpayers under audit and issue a revised assessment within 10 business days of finalizing an audit. There is no law to compel SARS to issue a, a, a revised assessment after the finalization of the audit, which again uh, just drags on the whole process and prevents the, the, the taxpayer from entering the formal dispute resolution process with the stipulated timelines. And what happens is when SARS uh, is, is, according to the Tax Administration Act, supposed to give progress reports to taxpayers to tell them where the progress lies, how the audit is progressing, what taxpayers get is a one-pager with one sentence that says, in execution. That is not a progress report. SARS must give a proper progress report so that taxpayers can understand where they where they where they matter lies. Thank you, Chair. It's all about really taxpayers' rights. Now, of course, SARS has a very important job. Nobody disputes that. It, it, it replenishes the purse, and SARS has enormous powers, as all revenue authorities have. But those powers must be moderated with some respect to taxpayers' rights. And at the moment, with regards to VAT orders and withholding of that, there is no possible right available, no legal right available to taxpayers unless they go to court. Just one point, Chair, with regards to the tax gap. I think one of the main obstacles to people not complying with the tax laws is what has been done with the tax money. And there is more than ample reports that there's a big hole in the bucket and that the tax money flows out of that bucket and not where it's supposed to flow. Now, if that hole in the bucket can be plugged and society at large understands that the money is being properly used, that tax gap 
will be far less difficult, far less difficult to close. Thank you. Thank you, Chief. Yeah, just under 10 minutes. Thank you very much. Next is Kosatu. Uh, good morning, Chair. Um, yeah, uh, Matthew Parks from Kosatu. Let me just share a presentation. Uh, Matthew quickly. Parks, who? Uh, from Sorry. Kosatu. <laughs> um, so yeah, Chair, let me just run straight into it. I know you're under a tight uh, time regime. Um, I think, Chair, just give, us, give thanks for allowing Kosatu to come and share his views. Um, I think, Chair, look, for Kosatu, our key challenges really are the economy facing its deepest recession in the century. We have an unemployment rate of at an all-time high of 46%, and we would know that 2 million jobs have been lost in the last two years. Uh, millions of workers have lost wages and are highly indebted. Uh, we're witnessing key SOEs in varying stages of collapse. Uh, municipalities are highly distressed and struggling to provide basic services. And of course, corruption is really eating at the heart of state capacity. Chair, the fiscal framework, we thought it was critical to address multiple crises simultaneously. Uh, we cannot be solely focused on reducing the debt levels, as important as it is. A 1.8% GDP growth rate is not enough to get us out of our problems. We need to look at providing relief to the unemployed, uh, mass public employment programs. How can we stimulate economic growth? Uh, rebuilding the state, SOEs and municipalities, protecting key frontline services, um, also tackling customs and uh, tax evasion, and of course, tackling corruption. So Chair, we do want to welcome the 350 SOD grant extension. Uh, let's retain it. Let's narrow the gap of the food poverty line. We were disappointed it wasn't adjusted for inflation, but it's a foundation for a BIG. And let's see how can we link it to skills training. We support the presidential employment stimulus, but we were quite disappointed the funding allocated to it from the medium-term budget statement was cut from 24 to 18 billion rand. We think we think we need to ramp it up, see if we can get it to create a million, if not two million jobs. Um, we hope the 35 billion rand for the SMMEs uh, is, is welcome, but we hope it won't be suffocated by stringent banking lending criteria. And of course, Chair, we need to fast track and finalize the uh, pension relief legislation to help financially distressed and indebted workers. We want to welcome the minister's statement that the wage bill must be negotiated in the Public Service Bargaining Council and other collective bargaining fora. This is a positive shift. Uh, but we do need to protect public service wages uh, from inflation erosion and to find a way to resolve the 2020 agreement. Many public servants chair are highly indebted. Um, they support unemployed relatives. We think there's a need for a single wage regime for and collecting bargaining forum for national and provincial government, SOEs and entities. But let's also reduce the exorbitant packages paid to, to politicians and to senior management. Let's do a physical headcount as was done in Plaza, and weed out the ghost posts. Chair ESCOM is critical to, to rebuilding the economy, so let's accelerate the social compact implementation, including uh, alleviating its debt burden, and good work has been done in that regard by ESCOM and government. But we, we want to reject the call by the minister to retain 10,000 workers at ESCOM and to sell its assets. The transit is critical to, to jobs in mining, agriculture, manufacturing. Process critical to getting workers in the cities on time to work. We need urgent intervention to save the railway network. So uh, let's, uh, we need to relaunch SAP's railway unit. Let's de deploy the defense force in the meantime to secure the lines and let's expedite the banner scrap, um, copper and steel exports. There's a plan, there's a need for a turnaround plan for the post office in conjunction with the post bank. But the, the budget or the MTF plan to retrench 6,000 postal workers has to be rejected. Share the road accident fund is you know government's greatest financial liability outside of ESCOM. 
We think government needs to retable the RAF and the RAPS bills at Parliament because these will help to get it back into a sustainable path. The fact that Parliament rejected themselves is worrying. Government hasn't moved quickly to retable them. SCBC would know retrench 1,000 workers a couple of years ago, but they're now replacing them with casual labour. So it's the only plan for SABC to replace decent work with casual labour. It can't be that way. We do want to welcome the 3 billion rand for Donnell, but can we simply pay these workers a salaries? They've been sitting for 18 months with no salaries. We want to support the 812 billion five-year infrastructure plan, especially the 126 billion for Transnet, 62 billion for Prasa, 26 billion for upgrading 900 formal settlements, um, 30 new schools, 40 schools to get water, 450 schools to get sanitation. Let's welcome the, finaliz the pending finalization of Regulation 28. But we need to expedite this infrastructure programs. You need to put in place measures to prevent corruption and construction site extortion. Let's also see how can we designate um, for local procurement steel, clothing, and yellow machinery. We're quite worried about that 175 out of 259 municipalities are financially distressed. Uh, that many, as we know, fail to provide water, sanitation, electricity, roads, or indigent rebates and subsidies. We've seen companies close and retrench as a result. We know local government is a hotspot of corruption, yet we didn't find concrete measures in the budget to address these. We don't see a clear roadmap to move from unsustainable municipalities to district development model. Chair, we all know billions are lost to corruption and wasteful expenditure, yet we didn't see concrete plans in the budget to tackle it. Uh, we think government must be more aggressive, use the Auditing Amendment Act, seize assets of offending persons. Let's really empower SARS to conduct lifestyle audits of politicians and the wealthy. Let's put persons in charge of NPN SAPs who will really prioritize corruption cases. Let's also resource the courts to prioritize these. We think government needs to have the courage to extend the ban on politically exposed persons doing business with the state. And also this means critically finalizing an, an enhanced and robust public procurement bill, which has been delayed for far too long. Chair, we want to really applaud the excellent work done by SARS. Let's see how can we build upon it. Let's allocate additional resources to it. It's an investment. And we think SARS really needs to prioritize lifestyle audits of the wealthy. Let's see how can we close some of the tax loopholes. Chair, we think it's, it'll be useful to take some of the retiring Defense Force personnel to, to SARS, to customs. Let's use the Presidential Promise Stimulus Program also to build customs capacity because it can't be that we only check about 10% of customs duty coming in. But we want to welcome the minister's commitment to overhauling an unaffordable fuel levy, but we hope this will actually be a promise that will be kept. We think there is some space still to increase taxes on the wealthy through income, estate, inheritance, or luxury imports. And it's critical to protect low and middle income earners. So we do appreciate the adjustments for this year. Chair appropriations, just quickly, I think we want to welcome the 17 billion for industrial financing, but we are concerned about the 4.8% cut in DTIC over the MTEF a 50% decline in funding by DBSA. We really need to resource the master plans. The 8 billion for NHI, the 3 billion for health workers is good, but the 0.2% growth in health expenditure over the MTEF is really going to weaken healthcare. We want to welcome the reversal of half of the cuts to the CCMA, but this is not sufficient enough to, to undo the damage done to the CCMA, which is really battling a flood of retrenchments. So we think the additional resources to, to minerals resources will help um, reduce the mining applications backlog, help to spur mining and create jobs. But we are concerned about the 1.9% increase for foster care grants and it should be reviewed to be at least linked to inflation. 
The 2.7% cut for land reform is quite worrying. And again, the silence on the land bank crisis is worrying. Well, my 4.3% cut to home affairs is really going to weaken its capacity to deliver quality services. But we do want to welcome the establishment of a, rap of a rapid response unit for the Defence Force to support SAPS. Chair, just getting to the end, um, we're preparing for engagements with government and business and NEDLEC on a social compact, but it's critical that it be underpinned by progressive principles, providing solidarity to the poor and unemployed, protecting workers' wages and labour rights, not sacrificing them. Um, let's deal with the fundamental obstacles to growth. We must include tackling corruption, waste and expenditure, reducing the bloated packages paid to politicians and the captains of industry, our colleagues in business. We need to have a mass jobs plan and measures to avoid retrenchments. Let's rebuild a developmental state. Let's identify areas of agreement and then build upon them. So I think, Chair, in conclusion, we do fear this is a, a budget which is speaking to endless dithering, of shifting of deadlines. Uh, I think there's a fear in government taking decisive and bold action. We fear that this will not take us out of the current quagmire but might actually worsen the situation. And we should remind honorable members, Chair, that elections is in two years time. We are simply running out of time. And perhaps the most fundamental question, Chair, to end off, is this budget going to take the economy to a 3% growth? Is it going to reduce unemployment? If it's not, then it's not good enough. Um, thanks very much, Chair, and I hope I've kept to the, to the timeframes. Thanks very much, Chair. Well, you have 58 seconds we owe you. Please note in Kulaleko. And for somebody who represents 1.3 million workers, uh, you're remarkably precise. Okay, uh, Healthy Living Alliance, uh, our friends as well. Uh, where are we? Are we here? Yes, we're here. Just sharing the screen. Yeah, uh, good. Okay, I'm not saying others of you are not our friends, but what I mean is, Okay, let me not go there. You know what I mean. Okay, everybody's our friend. Uh, everybody has a right to be here. But uh, obviously, Healthy Living Alliance is a matter that we have addressed over the last four or five years. And uh, we, 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 we have written reports to that effect of how we see their position. So that's what I meant. No more. Okay, go for it, my friend. Alan, if you're able to share the screen, it doesn't allow this side. And my colleague Eunice Monzo will be presenting. So if you can share the slides and then you, you can run the slides uh, for us. Okay, I'm just bringing it up. Hold on a second. Sorry, yes, I keep forgetting, Alan, it's you that's coordinating from the secretary side. Yes, I thought it's in Kulaleko. Okay. Right. There we are. You're on screen. Okay, great. Um, Dumelang, Lekai. Um, so, Lekai Units Monto. So, I hail from the Free State. And if um, you'd allow me to just to turn the video off for just for better. Yes, of course, of course. Yeah. Great. Next slide, please, Alan. Um, so Gila uh, is Healthy Living Alliance, as popularly known. Um, to both South Africa to have access to affordable and nutritious food for all, for all who live in South Africa, especially for those in vulnerable populations. So our mandate is to provide, um, is to fight for an, an enabling food environment. And we, to, we do this by ensuring sufficient and sustained investments in social support grants 
to help alleviate poverty, address hunger and health impacts of poor nutrition, which is prevalent in the rural communities. Next slide, please. Okay, so firstly, before we move on, we'd like to recognize and acknowledge the, the government for efforts to strengthen their health promotion levy by increasing the levy by 4.5% to 2.31 cents per gram of sugar as this was, tab was tabled in the budget. And we also welcome um, the announcement of uh, consultations to broaden this HPL scope to producers, as we know that contrary to popular belief, they're also unhealthy because they're quite high in sugar. And by also lowering the HPL taxable threshold on sugar content. However, with that being said, there's still so much more that needs to be done to confront our health crisis. So we, in order to understand the importance of the HPL, we first need to understand the high burden of sugar in our country. Between 2001 and 2015, South Africans have more than doubled the volume of sugary drinks they consume. Especially now coming from the festive season, we know how popular your Cokes, your Fantas, your Stonies are in Christmas dinners. And the science is clear that the overconsumption of SSBs increased risk of obesity, type two diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, tooth decay, which is quite prevalent in children. And diabetes is also seen in children now and youth. It's not just as popularly known in our culture as as well. And this is a threat to the future of our country. And we need to move away from the notion of food being an individual food choices and lifestyle diseases. But in actual fact, this crisis is because of our failing food system. Next slide, please. Obesity is one of the top five risk factors for early death and disability in our country. And diabetes is currently the number one killer amongst people such as myself, women, and number two for men by natural causes. The heightened vulnerability of epidemics as epidemics such as, as COVID-19 is sugar consumption and diabetes and hypertension were very prevalent in the numbers of those mostly affected by the COVID-19 deaths, those recorded and those not recorded in rural places mostly. And we see that COVID-19 was more severe in people with such morbidities. Sugar and diabetes and, and obesity has a major effect on our economy. You know, diabetic treatment in 2018, both diagnosed and undiagnosed, estimated at 21.8 billion. Direct healthcare cost of obesity in 2020 is estimated at 35 million. And these are results as is, um, from a study from Utrecht University. And the public health cost for type two diabetes alone is estimated to grow by 35.1 billion by 2030, if nothing is done to curb this. HPL so far, um, we've had quite significant um, success with it. And since its, its implementation of seen a consumption of sugar sweetened beverages reduced by 30 to 60%, with trend holding nationally across households. Industry reformulation of products to reduce sugar content we can see products such as Coke Zero, um, Stony Zero, Fanta Zero, and this as a result of the HPL. And the HPL has generated 7.9 billion between 2018 and 2021. 
And if the HPL had been on 20% as recommended by the World Health Organization, then South Africa this year alone would have would have gotten more than 2 billion in extra revenue. So it is important for us to strengthen the HPL so that we have even bigger impact on our health and positive results. And as this, we stand on the note on, on increasing the HPL to 20% as recommended by WHO. It is estimated that if we were to increase this to 20%, that 72,000 lives would be saved in South Africa and 5 billion in healthcare costs over 20 years would be saved. And these are costs that could be used somewhere else. The, the policy in its current form still excludes certain key unhealthy foods, such as fruit juices, as mentioned before, because fruit juices may be deemed as healthy, but in actual fact, they're not, because they too are high in sugar. And what I often find is that as a parent, as a mother of a two-year-old, is that we often think that because juice is healthier, we give this to our children. But in fact, it's actually quite high. And this has a negative impact on their health too. So we need to expand the strategy to confront the rise of NCDs in South Africa. And NCDs are rising not only amongst... Can you say a few words at the end? You know, uh, maybe round up, I don't know. It's just... Sorry. Well, I don't think later than that. Okay. To say a few words, I mean, you know, I'll call on you. You can put your hand up. I don't know if you have Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry. sorry. Um, so expanding the strategy would need to con will confront the rise in NCDs in South Africa. And NCDs, as I've mentioned, are rising not only amongst adults and the youth, but alarmingly also in children, which is something that we cannot ignore. And this is important for us, for the future of South Africa. We need to address this now. Next slide, please. And our recommendation is the Healthy Living Alliance to protect the health of this country, to protect the health of the youth, to protect the health of children, is that the state must act with urgency to utilize policy and regulatory tools and to create a healthier and more enabling food environment for all, especially for the vulnerable population, such as children, women, especially in rural areas. Yes. So we need to double the HPL tax rate to 3% as recommended by the World Health Organization. And the government needs to commit to annual adjustment of this rate to account for inflation, which takes place every year. We need to widen the scope of sugar sweetened beverages to also include fruit juices so that it's not only in soft drinks. And lastly, we need to consider lowering the taxable threshold from four grams per 100 milliliters in long term. Thank you for your time. Are you done? Okay, eight minutes. Good. Thank you very much. Next is Amanda Moby. Over to you. Uh, thank you, Chair. If I can just quickly share my screen. Um, may I also ask to keep my video off just to allow for. Yes, of work. course, of course, yes. Thank you, Chair. My name is Teresa Opa from Amanda.mobi. Thank you for having us today again. We are encouraged that revenue from the mining industry and the work of unit for high wealth individuals has helped raise revenue. We welcome the year-long um, extension of the 350 grant. Um, 
our members are disappointed that the 350 grant was not increased and given to more people, but we applaud the president's commitment to have a national discussion to decide what support will be provided after March 2023. The actions of this committee will help determine whether we have the revenue streams to turn the 350 grant into permanent basic uh, income support if the people are to share in the country's wealth and network tax, resource rent tax, and other tax measures are needed. Moving on, Honorable Chair, you will note that every year, Amanda Dodmobi attends both the Finance and Appropriations Committee's public hearings. We do this to allow the expansion of this platform to ordinary people. Honorable members, for years, we have worked hard to make these public hearings more inclusive. We have presented our campaign demands and with our members, we have brought along public comments to allow the people most affected by the budget to make their case to you. But public participation when it comes to the fiscal framework and revenue proposals continue to exclude the poor majority. At the public hearings held after the MTBPS last year, some of this committee acknowledged how it is frustrating for members of the public to participate in this process, repeat their demands again and again, and yet they don't see the changes they want. The question was how can Parliament hold the executive and national treasury to account? In our last presentation, we made simple actions the national treasury could implement to consult the poor majority when devising the budget. This included a free hotline for people to submit public comments on the budget, or at the very least, provide a cell number people could send their public comments to using please call me, SMS, or WhatsApp. National Treasury has made public participation even harder. They have still not had the decency to meet with the Gogos, whom you are very much familiar with. Treasury released a media statement outlining how the public can use Facebook and Twitter hashtags to submit budget tips. But Mom Kiza at the corner, who sells tomatoes to support her family, does not know what a hashtag is. The budget tips webpage reinforces inequality by making public participation inaccessible to the poor. We call on this committee to demand that Treasury outlines a concrete plan to make participation in the budget accessible to the marginalized majority. But in order for public participation to work, honorable members, Treasury's leadership needs to be open to public input on the fiscal framework and revenue proposals. However, comments by senior leaders in National Treasury suggest they aren't interested in what the poor have to say and that they have already made up their minds and will do everything they can to pursue austerity. President Ramaphosa stated in his Senate that we will leave no one behind and we will have a national discussion to decide what support will be provided after the 350 grant ends in March 2023 and how this would be financed. Yet Finance Minister Godongwana seems to have already decided on behalf of the nation. When asked about a potential time frame for implementing our basic income, he stated not in, in the next two years. We collected public comments from people who could not participate in Treasury's budget tips and we tweeted these comments from our, our account. However, Treasury Director General Dondo Mohajani Mohajani was clearly not interested in the views of those who rely on the 350. After the budget speech, he stated that the social relief of distress, for instance, I would have taken the 40 billion rent and 44 billion rent that I'm giving to us, social relief of distress, and do more on the infrastructure side, do more on other, uh, in, you can call it incentives, for instance, if you want to expand that, because it's through those that government can partner with business and business can create more jobs. 
This, honorable members, is a problem. As we all know, the 350 grant is a lifeline to many households in this country. Never mind the fact that it is not enough and the fact that civil society has called for it to be increased, to be expanded and kept until it is turned into basic income. While DG Mohajani may claim this is just his personal opinion, he is using his position of power to drown out the voices of the poor. Having a treasury official speaking like this in public about an important budget allocation to extend the 350 grant feeds into this elite perception that grants create dependency. His statement is very dangerous, especially when he cannot promise or guarantee the creation of jobs by 1 April 2023 for the nearly 10 million people who rely on the 350 grant to barely survive. He's feeding the mentality that people just want grants and don't want to work. The 350 is much more important than many people realize. Bring a message in support of extending the 350. Once petition signer said, please hear our cry. We are unemployed. The banks won't give us capital to start a business. This money will help us start our own businesses and take care of our children and invest for their future. Honorable members, we urge this committee to hold National Treasury to account and demand senior leaders to cease making public statements that undermine public participation and accountability. Moving on, honorable members, when a budget is tabled, it must be inclusive. And in the case of this country, it must protect the poor. You will note that in our written submission, we said this budget is anti-poor, although some of you may disagree. Over the years, we've seen budgets tabled to cater more for the rich than the poor. 20 rand and 90 rand increases to grants may seem like a lot of money when budget is allocated in a sum, but for a person who receives an actual increase, it is nowhere near enough. According to PMBJD, the average food basket for a household costs just over 4,000, and this basket comprises just the 44 core food items. None of these grant amounts can cater for a household. Some people have argued that we don't have enough taxpayers to fund an increase in expansion of social grants, as if people who don't pay income tax are not taxpayers. A 14-year-old buying frozen chicken portions for her family, honorable members, is paying tax through VAT. Even with, even with some items VAT free or zero rated, all basic necessities are expensive and social grants hardly cover the, bas the basics. Taxing the rich Fixing rich people more won't leave them starving. They will live in their mansions and drive their sports cars still. The revenue proposal assumes that millions must continue to live in poverty because you can't afford to tax the rich. But this is simply treasury catering for the 1% at the expense of the poor. Together with the members of the public and other organizations, we have called for a net wealth tax. Already many wealthy people and companies have hit billions overseas to avoid paying SARS the tax they owe. But internationally, country by country reporting exposes like the Panama Papers and policy interventions by governments around the world, more is being done to address illicit financial flows, tax evasion and migrating without checks and balances on one's wealth. National, and, National Treasury and some members of this committee claim there's no money for social grant increases or basic income support, while at the same time they're failing to increase taxes that could help reduce poverty. Had a net wealth tax been implemented last year, researchers estimate it could have been it could have raised between 70 and 160 billion rent. This could have easily doubled the 350 grant amount to 700 rent. It's not just the rich that need to be taxed honorable members. There are companies who can afford to pay more corporate tax. For for example, despite the pandemic and the Competition Commission forcing them to reduce some of their data prices, Vodacom has seen its revenue continue to grow. We also need to increase taxes on products that harm our health and economy. We welcome the proposed tax on e-cigarettes, but we are disappointed that 
the taxes on alcohol, tobacco, and sugary drinks were not increased far more. Of increasing uh, the sugary tax, it's, 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 it's much better because it also encourages people to reduce their consumption of harmful products and, and it also makes it less affordable and it, it, it will reduce um, the consumption. Honorable members, members of the public are being sent pillar to post when it comes to pro poor demands, and people are getting increasingly frustrated. So, we ask members of this committee to ask yourselves if a budget does not have adequate taxes for the public purse to meet the needs of the, the people, why do you vote to pass it? What recommendations have you made to raise revenue needed for the public purse to meet the needs of the people? Honorable members, it saddens us that we are here once again with the same pleas and demands. Many of you are familiar with us and the videos of the Gogos, and even they are getting tired of the repetition. You get the picture, honorable members. And in conclusion, we are still here again with the same demands from three years ago. We ask that please increase the 350 and expand it to include more people. We we demand that you extend the 350 grant until it is turned into basic income. Dennis, you're at 11 minutes, 23 seconds. Please round up. We understand what you're saying. Thank you. Others rounded it all up. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, sorry about that, Eunice, but I mean, we're familiar. You're summarizing what you've said. So thanks very much for that. Next then is Women on Farms Project. Thank you. Good, good, uh, more, uh, good morning. 
dear members of the Standing and Select Finance Committees and Committee Secretaries. My name is Kara Mackay and I represent Women on Farms Project. As Women on Farms Project, this submission calling for the introduction of a wealth tax on the richest 1% of South Africans on behalf of women farm workers and dwellers. We believe this tax is an untapped revenue source that could address South Africa's growing inequalities, reduce or stabilize the budget deficit, and improve the quality of life for poor South Africans, including farm workers and dwellers. The study at the University of the Witwatersrand showed that this tax can increase the budget by as much as 160 billion. Argentina and Bolivia were also very successful in implementing a wealth tax. To talk directly to their realities, I now introduce you to two farm women. They will share with you the impact that a wealth tax could have on their lives. First, you will hear from Louise Wattain, a farm dweller living on a farm in Stellenbosch. Next, we will listen to Charmaine King, a mother of four children and a farm worker. She has taken time off work today to speak to us, to speak to us about the conditions of farm labor. Women on farms, I, the women will now speak in Afrikaans and I will translate after that. I now hand you over to Louise for today. I guess Louise for from Berlusplaz, Jonker Zoek. Ik is 49 jaar oud. Ik heb drie kinders. Ons is nou op die van die uitzettings. Ons is op die uitzettings alles. Ik heb ons ik die uitzetting het begin die dag wat mijn paas, mijn paas sterven. Ik ons is ons het een stuk grond daar. Ik is weer ik plant op die grond. Maar omdat die uitzetting veel daar is, het ons die waar hier om te gaan. So all what I ask for is not that they don't want to die the rightdomsbelasting will be installed so that we can live our own land and our own house can live so that we can live in peace and live. And the world has only a lot of water up. So we have the big water on our place and so as I have my own land and my own house I will not be so in peace and my children will be in peace. So we have that 1% Rijkdom belasting zodat ons zo gelukkig leven kan het. Want die grond is baie belangrijk voor enkel moeders soos ek, zodat ons groep, voor die gemeenskap ook, kan deel van hierdie grond. Hi, my naam is Jan-Wenke. Ek bly in Sjallambos op Vlottenburg Plaas. Ik het school gelos op een 15 jaar ouderdom. Want ik het gezien, mijn ouders kan niet hier in maan voor voedsel elke dag op die tafel zitten. Ik is maar graag uit, graag uit die school om mijn ouders te gaan helpen. Ik was ook een ouder met vier kinders. Ik kan niet met, ik heb niet één kind wat met curriculum klaargemaakt het. Ik kan niet vaak stier om verder te gaan studeren. Want die lonesten man op die plaatsen. As die afgerekens alles van ons lone afgaan dier die maand, dan het ons ontomatis te sê niks. Ons moet nog door te gaan om die kost te gaan koop. Ons kom baie kere kom ek net met een of twee sakjes uit die doorbeek. Ons lei honger dier die maand. Dan moet ek gaan na manilene stoel om my honderd rand te gaan leen. 
dan moet ik nog een en vijf daar aan de boer betaal, waarvan die ook van mij belonen afkomt. Ik verhaal net wel kouden, alsjeblieft, om mijn basis in Kamkran voor ons te geven. Ik heb ook een klein bezig, ik heb het gym in Juwelen, maar dat is de man. Dat vind ik van mij genoeg geld om kost op die tafel te zetten. En waarvan ik niet kan met een kinderse opie ook gebruik maken om voor kost te kopen. Ik wil graag met een stevig verder in die kwijzen te gaan leren, maar ik kan niet aan die loonen als de man. Ons krijg baie zwaar op die plaatsen, ons as plaatsvrouwens, en ek as een seizoenwerker, waarvan ek net acht maanden werk. Van januari tot april maand toe pars ek, en van toen maand af, leid ons weer die wangerde op om weer van niks jaar een ooste kan geef vir die boere. Ek vraag groot asseblief, dat government net een recent van die rijkdombelasting van Zuid-Afrika mensen voor ons kan geven op basis in een kamkraan. Dat zou mijn leven, en niet net mijn niet, veel aan een plaats voor ons en voor ons zijn leven gemakkelijk maken. Alsjeblieft. So that was two women from, um, they both farm workers or farm dwellers in Stellenbosch. The first woman was Louise Fortain. She's 49 years old. She's currently living on a farm. She's been on that farm now for 32 years. And she had to leave school because she had, um, she was, the family was faced with a challenge. Either she works for the farm or they, or they have to pay rent on the farm. So she left so that her family didn't have to pay rent. She's currently facing an eviction case. Her father died on the 3rd of May. On the 4th of May, she received a very first eviction notice. And ever since then, she and the farmer have been fighting over this eviction case. Farmer switches the water off whenever he pleases. She and her son, in place with no water, went to go fetch water. And both of them got assaulted by the farmer. There is a case pending, but nothing has come of that case. When she speaks of her life on farm, she speaks of anxiety. Prius, Prius, Prius. She loves her life in anxiety. She's scared for the farmer. She's scared that he would attack her again. And the son is currently still in counseling from all those years ago. She said in the COVID time, they had a massive problem with food. She likens it to a famine. And the only thing that kept her and her family going was that she had a food garden. And from that food garden, she could feed her family and many other women. She is therefore asking for a piece of land for herself. She's asking for the government to redistribute land to farm women who have been working this land for centuries and centuries. And with that, she would feed her family. And with that, she would secure a livelihood for her family because if the food is covered, then she can concentrate on other expenditure, such as making sure her children can do further education. She's making this demand, and she says that she believes that if you tax the rich in South Africa, just 1% of the rich, that funds can be available and can be used for land redistribution. So the second woman was Shamaine King. She is a 41-year-old woman, and she is a farm worker, and she's currently bringing in the harvest as we speak. So she took one day off work to come and speak to us. She's a mother of four children. At the age of 15, she had to leave school because her father was an alcoholic and her mother and her were the only ones that could provide. Since she was the eldest, she sacrificed and has stopped her schooling in standard grade eight. 
Um, she says for her life on a farm is very difficult. The wages are just too little to provide for your family, not even food or education. She just cannot make ends meet. In addition, we must consider that if for her to get to a town and to get to the, the, the door, she has to pay transport. So she has an additional expenditure that she has to pay. She's also a seasonal worker, which means that eight months of the year she's working. When she's not working, she has one child on all pay, and she uses that one all pay to provide for the entire family. If that wasn't hard enough, there are constant deductions getting taken off from her pay. They have to pay water, electricity, rent, doctor fees, and sometimes the board even takes off the uniform, the farm worker's uniform, because he believes they should pay for that. When she doesn't make ends meet, she has no choice but to go to the money lenders, and the interest rates are exorbitant. So for every 100 rand she borrows, she has to pay back 150. Her demand is for the basic income grant. With a basic income grant, she knows that she's guaranteed a certain amount of money. She can then plan her life. She can plan properly. She can provide food security for her children. She can use that basic income grant to support her business. And whatever she saves on the food, she can use for the education of her children. For That is her primary concern, making sure that her children have a further education and can do more and be more than a farm worker. Thank you. That is our presentation. Um, thank you very much for the time and for the space to hear our, our stories. Yeah, well, thank you for coming. This is your parliament, not anybody else's. And we haven't had you before, maybe before, so it's good. Thank you, and thank you to your two former colleagues. Uh, we'll come back to you now. Over to us members. Uh, sorry, what have we got? Uh, hands up, please. I don't see any hands at the moment. Dennis? Go ahead in the meanwhile, Dennis. Yeah, thank you very much, Chair. Um, yeah, again, uh, appreciation for the time that's gone into these. Um, and perhaps, uh, certainly just during Mr. Liking's uh, presentation, uh, a thought struck me, and it, it relates to something I read the other day where it said that most people listen to respond rather than listening for understanding. And and without trying to be trite or condescending, uh, I do urge Treasury to, to, to hear uh, the input, certainly from the, the, the tax practitioners and so on, uh, on SARS, and, and try to understand some of the frustrations that have been given voice to today. Uh, and of course, I say that because uh, I, I raised the same flag myself this morning. But um, yeah, so, so to, to please take it seriously, don't just respond on Friday. If, if, if you can maybe try and internalize some of the issues that have been raised, I think it would be it would be really constructive, and I think uh, the inputs have generally been given in a constructive manner. So, if uh, if, if if we can uh, uh, get 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 a, a lacquer response from from Treasury rather than just a a, a response, uh, yeah. Um, without going into too much detail, I think that uh, on Casarte's presentation, certainly, I think I thought that the Concord had resolved the 2020 wage agreement, but. Um, yeah, I suppose that's a matter that's open to, to, to some dispute. Uh, would have liked to see something on ETOLs. Uh, certainly, I expected to see that on the um, uh, the Kasatu presentation because the fact is that we have uh, the Minister of uh, Transport telling, having told us 
that we could expect something on on ETOLs, and we didn't see it in the budget. Um, and there's also not really a, a, an indication in the in, in the fiscal policy. Uh, th th there was a comment from the minister in our session the other day, um, but nothing firm. And this matter just continues to be kicked down the road, um, bit by bit, and, um, and 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 we're not getting to to any sort of of, of real resolution um, on that on that particular issue. Uh, and of course, the same with with the SAA, with uh, Mr. Gordon having having made pronouncements in in, in the public space, um, and we we didn't see that uh, filtering through. So, yeah, just two things that I expected from Kasatu, and I'd hope that that uh, mentioned so I could jump on board. They didn't, so I created an opportunity for them to do so. Uh, healthy Living Alliance, yeah, look. I, I, I think that some of your arguments were great. The, the one thing that I do, would like to say is, please, if you do come uh, to us and you say a, a recent survey has shown uh, something, if you can give us a, a link or something to, to that recent survey, because it, it helps us to understand perhaps a little bit more better, uh, a little bit better, sorry, a little bit better um, where that survey is coming from. So, I mean, a, a, a recent survey in Cape Town found that there's no coffee left in the cupboard this morning. But, uh, you know, you know th th that survey might not be credible. But I I'm sure your, your survey is credible. But if you can give us a link or, or, or perhaps uh, some sort of a reference point, it, it makes it a lot better, easier for us to, to, to comment as to, uh, you know, the credibility of the, of the comments put forward um, and so on. I, I did feel that the Healthy Living Alliance, you contradicted your own argument a little bit by saying that uh, increasing the levy causes reduced consumption, but then saying that, you know, increasing the levy would have brought in X amount of revenue. Um, a little bit contradictory, but but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and I don't necessarily disagree with you. Um, um, I just think that there's a little bit more work that needs to be done. And, and I'm always a, a fan of doing things in a more measured way then suddenly taking a giant leap. Uh, just for interest's sake, I too have shifted to Coke Zero uh, in the evening. Um, yeah, Amadla Mobi, I just wanted to make the point that there's a big difference between an excuse and a reason. Um, but again, your, your, your points were, were, were noted. And the women on farms, I actually quite enjoyed your presentation um, and, and, and your perspectives. I think that you there is a reasonably good case for, for, for some of the arguments that you make. I do think, Chair, that perhaps we need to refer some of those inputs to uh, the Minister of uh, Labour and Unemployment, um, or perhaps suggest that uh, Women on Farms makes a presentation uh, to that particular committee uh, when, when they have opportunity. Um, because I think some of those inputs could, could be uh, taken on board by the by that particular ministry. Thank you very much, Chair. Chairperson. Uh, okay, but Mr. Maletsani uh, put his hand up first, but go ahead. I'm sure it's fine. It makes no difference. Go ahead. Then it's Maletsani and then Noxi. Yeah. Go ahead, Comrade. Yeah. Let me, Chair. Go ahead. Okay, thank you, Chair. Chair, Chair I think I, 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 I just want to make the, the emphasis on the, 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 the credibility and also the import, importance of public hearings. I think what is coming out here from these public hearings today 
is 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 truly uh, um, adding value to the to the process of public hearings. Uh, only two comments, Chairperson, is to Kosato. Uh, um, uh, um, I think they have made a, a number of valuable value valuable points that um, uh, to for consideration in terms of the process the, uh, outline of the budget. And then uh, on the farm workers, yes, it was very interesting to listen to um, still the struggling of the farm workers on the farms. And also when I was looking further in terms of the basic conditions of employment, uh, in still of these casual um, temporary workers and seasonal workers, I think something needs to be looked at in terms of how these processes can be considered for to stop this process of because it's still really struggling on the farms. So, Chairperson, I just wanted to make those comments. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Comrade Molezzane, and then Comrade Noxi. Thank you, Chairperson. Let me acknowledge the presentations and please pardon me for not uh, opening my. Um, my camera, I've got a problem of network where I am. Mm. Uh, firstly, I would like to pose a question to Haela. Uh, I've heard them that they are talking about a good nutrition. Just want to check with them whether are they playing any role in the school nutrition to make sure that learners get balanced, healthy diet from their early age. Secondly, to Kosatu, uh, having realized that uh, yesterday the Kevin crew workers were demonstrating against the possibility of losing their jobs, uh, about 200 of them will be joining the masses of uh, unemployed people. What is Kosatu's view or comment uh, to Takatsu Consortium? about what is just about to implement to the workers since they were promised that they will be they are going to be trained and they will be uh, taken back to their to their to, to their respective work thank you chair thank you comrade noxi thank you chair um Chair, I will, I will also maybe just comment the, the presenters and um, appreciate the fact that in, indeed the, the South African public through the stakeholders that we have here today is an enlightened uh, public and therefore <clears throat> we appreciate our civil society, but I would also like to indicate that as, as, the, as the portfolio committee, indeed, uh, I listened to the initial groups that we had earlier on when they, they empowered us about areas of oversight and the issues that we could raise 
with the department, which is also appreciated because then it 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 means that our stakeholders are aware that uh, the portfolio committee has got a an oversight role, and therefore there is a separation of uh, tasks. Uh, I don't want to make use of the of the concept of powers between ourselves and the department. Uh, I think even the the abogogo, the fact that they could also freely access uh, parliament and freely freely participate uh, means that we also are fulfilling our task as a portfolio committee uh, just to to make sure that uh, uh, we 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 keep the department in check because it is this transversal department um you know I know that was it Kosadu who mentioned home affairs, for example, and that they have suffered a cut. And I think sometimes uh, these public hearings, I hope they also take place in the various departments because I want to believe that they also have a duty to make a case for their for, for, for their pests to be increased. I know that for a fact the, the offices, the home affairs offices are not well scattered around the country. I know that there are towns surrounding Credoc, for example, uh, that are serviced by either Credoc or Queenstown. And where my heart bleeds for them is when they, they travel to either Cradock or Queenstown, they will definitely find long queues in Queenstown until closing time. But in Cradock, what they will find is an offline uh, system almost all the time. I've been there, I've, I've experienced this. So I think we, 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 it's true what is being presented here but we really need to advocate for departments because it's not going to help us if we we can for more funds for departments and yet the departments do not necessarily have plans on how they want to spend those those funds the second area that i think karim you will recall that in our joint meeting with the ministry. I did check on the question of the, 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 the loan for small business, which is allocated to some financial institutions, including banks. And that loan in 2020, for example, was not maximally used. And therefore, it is a fair question to ask how can we guarantee this time that it's going to happen? 
But I think the question to ask here is 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 further to say, what is it that National Treasury is doing to ensure transformation of these institutions so that even ordinary people are able to access these funds? Lastly, for me, Chair, I think uh, <clears throat> maybe let us accept what the 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 president indicated about how the private sector can also play a role in in ensuring that there are jobs that are created in our country because i think also that calls for the departments to also transform the way they do things such that Instead of creating one billionaire, we rather create a few millionaires, meaning that the, the, the tender system has either to be has to be relooked so that it is either dropped or changed. Thank you, thank you, Chairperson, and thank you for the compliment. <laughs> for public consumption, please. Okay, uh, Barney, over to you, my friend. Thank you, Honourable Chair. Honourable Chair, with reference to the utterances made by the presenters of women working on farms, one must heed against generalisation. And I assume what the presenter allegedly experienced uh, might have been an isolated event and it's uh, everyone's free will to choose or decide where he or she wants to work. And it's a fact that organized farming and organized agriculture are treating employees with respect and are keeping to the labor legislation prescripts. It's also a fact that the Department of Labor have appointed additional personnel to focus, among others, on industries and farms to see that best practices are being practiced there. Um, also, to the, that specific presenters, um, free education is a reality in South Africa, both primary and secondary education, and the presenter can definitely look into it. And very important, Chair, one must not cast a shadow over the agriculture sec uh, sector. Um, I believe this is an isolated uh, uh, event that took place, and um, if we can hear from generalization, it would be appreciated. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. As far as I see, everybody's covered. If anybody isn't just butt in, uh, look, very quickly, uh, um, I also I want to agree with everything Comrade Abraham said, actually. Um, you know, and I want to make a more general point. Um, I, I know... Well, I know to the extent I can know how frustrating it is for you to constantly come here and feel you're not making headway. But this is your parliament. There is no other option. There is no other institution of decision making uh, in the sense of legislation and action. Okay, we may not be as effective as we should be, as even our own leadership tells us in parliament and outside. You can Google and see hundreds of documents where we are called upon by the NEC, by conference decisions of the ANC, by the chief whips over time, et cetera, to ask us to be more effective. 
Now, we can have a long debate about this, but this isn't the forum. It's to say also that, in my view, it's less a lack of will than a lack of other constraints. But still, we need to do more. And you should never give up on this parliament. In other words, if you give up on this parliament, you're giving up on democracy, really. And you can't do that. And so, you know, we can't meet all your needs. And to be fair, neither can national treasury. But to be fair, you have every right to raise all of your needs. And it's about trade-offs the budget is. And we get the trade-offs right at times, and we don't get it right at times. As Comrade Ibrahim says, in other words, to extrapolate from what she's saying, come and keep us under pressure. We take you far more seriously than you think. I, I really must stress that. And you help us to get insights, but we can't always get our way. And it is a very, very difficult climate where it's economic and political and, and even look at globally where we are. Okay, very quickly then, Mr. King, I hear you. You've raised some of these issues in a different way before and, and so on, but I really would like to hear Saad speak on Friday before I come to any uh, conclusions. I think you must be there on Friday or send somebody from your institution, from your road consulting uh, uh, structure uh, to be here if you can't. Let's hear them, and then I would like to offer my own views after that. Uh, secondly, on COSATU, I mean, I know these things, but when you put it in, an, in a single document, it hits us quite hard. The number of workers that are going to be losing their jobs at a time when, you know, we've lost 2.1 million jobs. Am I correct? That's a figure or thereabouts since COVID hit us. So that is very worrying. And hopefully Kosato is engaging with the government and with the management of the state-owned entities. 6,000 postal workers is horrific. Horrific. Really. Given the importance of the post office, never mind that it's, it's, it's stuttering and, and emerging. And yes, on casual labor at SABC, one notes that. Um, some of the issues, obviously, that you raised, Matthew, are appropriations issues, as indeed with the case of others, but we will refer it to them. And the chairperson of appropriations on the NCOP side is here this meeting. On healthy living, we hear you. We empathize a lot with you. Uh, you know, uh, as we've said before, and I won't repeat it, just a generic point, there's Kosatu right here uh, before you. Uh, who will fight for workers' jobs and the balance between the need to retain jobs, the needs and interests of both the emerging and established sugarcane farmers, the uh, needs for health, and all of these considerations that we found. And there's Nedlac and so on where these things are negotiated. Hopefully, Hila, you're there in the community forum, or you make representations to the community forum of NEDLAC to take up your issues. But, you know, yet again, as with others who have made representations, the majority in this committee are empathetic. We understand, you know. And as, uh, as uh, Dennis said, you know, we internalize. Uh, well, he didn't say it in respect of us, but I'm using his term that he picked up from somewhere, not just listening, but, uh, you know, understanding and internalizing. It's just that we, 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 we are where we are, and it's a difficult uh, period we're in, to put it mildly, and there are no easy answers out of it, but please help us and continue to do so. So, Angela, uh, I don't have much to say except, you know, repeat boringly what I've said before, but at least there's some progress in this current budget. 
Mangla Mobi Yunus, uh, again, uh, <laughs> we don't have any differences of the values you have, majority of us at least, with the goals you seek to achieve. Uh, you know, most of us agree. I, I mean, who can disagree with you? Uh, the only issue is, again, trade-offs and what's viable and possible. And uh, I note that you say the National Treasury hasn't met the Gorgos, and I think they must reply why that hasn't happened. As far as I recall, we asked them to do so about two years ago. So the National Treasury can also explain its constraints. And in these days of Zooms, Zoom meetings and so on, I'm sure the structure in my hometown of Sindusi can, uh, as well as yourselves, facilitate that, or Treasury can help in that regard. Of course, the DG and the Minister of Treasury don't decide whether there's going to be an SR, a BIG or not. It is for the government as a whole. As you know, this matter is being uh, in, uh, explored more and more intensively. Uh, but what does trouble us is that the whole overhaul of the social security uh, system which government has put on the agenda, including in NEDLAC, we must find out where that is. <clears throat> but essentially, uh, uh, the decision will not be made by Treasury alone. They will have a say, obviously, but ultimately it's a decision that the government as a whole and the ANC as a majority party will provide the framework for that. And there are two conferences pending in July and in December. But the Appropriations Committee, and in fact, our committee have both said that we, in principle, support a BIG, and we've asked the executive to explore the possibilities of that because we can't instruct them when we haven't done our own research. Kara, thanks for coming. And I agree with uh, what Comrade Abraham says, that you should also go to the Labour Committee. The same thing struck me. Again, we have no differences with you, as we don't have with the Mandela Mobi and Hila. I mean, in terms of empathy and values. We don't. I mean, the majority of us are bound, in any case, by the party we come from, which supports these things broadly. It's about what's doable. I'm sure some people, at least, if not the parties as a whole, who are also here, other than the ANC, will agree uh, with most of the things you say. I also think the National Treasury should reply on uh, several things that were raised, but including what Member of Parliament Abraham raised, that, uh, yeah, we've now eased the way for a uh, higher take-up of the small business loan. But can you on Friday spell out how you're going to seek to do that and how you're going to uh, monitor progress? And we will also monitor, especially the National Assembly Committee, presumably at your quarterly meetings. On the transformation of the banks, Noxie, you know we did that extensive public hearings. Each minister keeps postponing the date for the next NEDLAC summit. We should put that back in our report, is my view. Let's see if the majority agree. Finally, uh, I, I will speak to the co-chair offline, but I'm just putting it to members, and if anybody wants to respond, they're welcome to do so. But given the number of tax issues that are being raised, and given that some of these have been raised before, and given the limited time and space, I know the National Assembly meets quarterly with NT and SARS, and you pursue all these issues with them on a quarterly basis, but the people who raise these issues here, they can't come every quarter and connect. In any case, they don't have a say there. It's not a public hearing. So what I'm asking colleagues to think about, if anybody has a view, put it in the chat group or raise it before we conclude shortly. Um, shouldn't we ask National Treasury and SARS on Friday to spend 50, 60% of the time responding to the SARS issues and 40% or 45% uh, you know, 
to the other issues, but at least the majority of the time this time on Friday must be taken up by SARS. And those of you who raised SARS issues, please come or send somebody else from your organization or structure to come, then they can take up your issues. But can members come back on that as well? Okay, shall we then hand over to the four uh, contributors in this half? And we've, we've said we'll extend the time. Uh, the chairperson, co-chairperson also say a few things. So maybe we can give them all four minutes and then we can round up by 12.15. I'm sorry about the extra 15 minutes, but, uh, you know, we should have planned better on our side. Thank you. I heard an interruption. Is anybody wanting to say something? No, Chairperson, I just, <laughs> I, yeah. I, 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 maybe I think you will give us another uh, round, but I think okay. I just wanted, uh, I just wanted sure. to, say, to say, Chair, if you allow me. Go ahead, go ahead. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, Chair, I just wanted to say that in, in terms of the importance of public hearings, I think as this committee, we must emphasize the importance of public hearings that we don't discourage, but yes, we yes. We encourage uh, yes. uh, 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 public hearings, and then also allow those who are making presentations to speak to speak what is the truth, and to to tell Parliament as to what is happening because we want to know, so that we we can then plan according to and also do our oversight effective, and 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 and, and efficient. So I just want to raise that point so that we don't encourage when people are presenting to say you must not say this, you must say that. Thank you, Chair. No, thanks very much for that. You're saying the same thing the whip of the committee uh, is saying, and, and I'm sure the co-chair will agree. And, and, you know, I hope people take our sincerity uh, for what it is. We may not deliver, but we're very committed to doing what we can, and we very much need your participation. Uh, the structures are here, and even more, those who are not here. National Treasury, you should also reply to Eunice's point that uh, Eunice, I'm also Eunice, why you in US? So you see the name is quite gender neutral, Comrade Noxy. So there you are. Now, uh, Eunice raised this question about national treasury and needing to consult more about budget and that, you know, people don't have hashtags and all that. Can you reply to that on Friday? At one stage, you were quite a lead department. Uh, you know, we had tips for Trevor, and you did the translation of the budget into 11 languages in a very simple form that was so impressive. How much of that actually happens right now? I don't know, but you can at least respond to that on Friday. Okay, over then to uh, the first is Road Consulting. Mr. King? Thank you, Chair. Uh, I don't have any further comments, Chair, but uh, just on a note of uh, clarity, I hope I didn't give the impression that I am accusing SARS of reverting back to the state capture era. I'm certainly not suggesting that for an instant. I just raised that because it has uh, unfortunately happened before where the economy has suffered with the constant VAT withholdings. Uh, SARS has a very important job and we all understand that. I'm just pointed it out from a taxpayer's rights point of view that taxpayers also have rights. Thank you, Chair. No, no, that was understood. Understood all right. And uh, for somebody in the first half who raised the ombud, we had the ombud uh, before the National Assembly Committee in 2019, I think in 2018. I don't know if the NAS called them 
but we might find a space, or maybe we can do a joint meeting, Comrade Noxi, Comrade Joe. Uh, but I think we should call the ombudsperson, really, and, and maybe we can invite you as well. Uh, Mr. King, I take it we did ask you to engage directly with National Treasury with your issues the last time. Did that happen? Yes, we had one meeting, uh, Chair. We right. unfortunately didn't get to meet together with Treasury and SARS, which would have been very useful, but that unfortunately didn't happen. All right, we'll look into exploring that with them. Just remind me in Kululeka to follow up with uh, Treasury and SARS on it. Uh, okay, next then is Kosatu. Um, no, thanks very much, Chen. Yeah, thanks to, to members of the questions. Um, I think just an honorable rider on the, the wage agreement. Look, at basically public servants feel that the, the bill for corruption, for wasteful expenditure, for mismanagement of SOEs has been dumped upon them. Um, the politicians and managers are not taking the pain, but we are sourcing it to, to nurses and teachers, police officers, who often not pay that well, to be honest. Um, it has a huge damage to the relationship right now between the employer, government, and employees. Um, the fear is that if government is allowed as the biggest employer to undermine collective agreements, all other employers will simply follow suit. And then you might actually spark um, labor market instability, strikes, etc. Um, so it really is going to take some, some time, to be honest, to repair that relationship. Um, unions have a critical role. Workers have, in their 2020 wage agreement, started 2021, sought to find a compromise. That's why the agreement is the lowest in many years. But they feel that government is not treating the engagement with good faith. But look, I think the minister did well in the budget speech to say he respects collective bargaining. Government is going to engage. We can hope this will be a, a rebuilding of a relationship, but it's going to take quite some time. Chair, I think on the ETOs, we didn't really go into it because we feel ETOs is dead. It's just a question of government coming with a new model for it. Um, I think, Chair, to Honorable Njadu, look from our side as Kosatu, we do think there is value in these engagements of Parliament. We can point to many issues that we think Treasury has heard from us. MPs we think have heard from us. We've also heard from them as well. So, for example, we can point to the extension of the 350 SRD grant. Um, we can point to the process or the agreement to provide workers some sort of pension relief. Um, we don't always move us with the speed we will desire, but there is value. Chair, just a thing to, to yourself and Honorable Malitani and Ryder around SAA. We hope this uh, consortium will save jobs, but we've seen 10,000 jobs at SAA, 1,500 jobs at SAA Express being lost. We hope this will help to create some new jobs, revive SAA. But it is a bit concerning how long it's taking. Do, they, do the Takatsu chaps actually have funding available? Uh, but I think, Chair, on the SOE front, um, the, these SOEs all made a contribution to the economy. They all were in decent condition until a decade ago when the demons of state capture were let loose. They all have a role to play, but we need to see turnaround plans. We need to see repositioning of the SOEs, a new funding model as the minister committed to. We need to see the SOE shareholder management bill being finally brought to parliament to clean up these SOEs, to consolidate them. But there has to be an alternative to retrenches. We, we can't simply retrench S workers at SAA, SA Express, SABC, Post Office, Donnell, Transit, Eskom, etc. Not an economy of approaching 50% unemployment. Um, where they might transition workers, give them retraining, re redeploy them, or find new opportunities, but let's have a more humane approach as opposed to sending people to the unemployment queue. Um, to Honorable Abrams, other portfolio committees don't have these kind of hearings on the specific budgets. We do raise our issues in the appropriations and the division of revenue bills. 
But I think, yeah, it would be helpful if other committees actually went to the specific departments. And we raise the point of Home Affairs because Home Affairs has got a critical role in supporting as a frontline service department. When we cut the budgets, there's going to be an impact. We had raised some of the appropriation issues to Honorable Abrams and Honorable Karim just to give members a bit of a feel of the impact of the fiscal framework on some of the key frontline service departments. There is some good reinforcement, but there's many areas we think we are unwise to cut, you know, for example, on industrial financing, et cetera. And these are a consequence of what we think are sometimes um, reckless cuts to, to specific departments. I think, Chair, just getting to the end quickly, I think we, we would welcome the kind of issues that uh, Women on Farms has raised. Um, then they do a good job to raise the farm workers' issues. And look, I mean, farm, farmers are like all of employers. Some are good, some are bad. But we have laws in place that need to be enforced by department. Those employers who are found wanting need to be uh, held accountable in terms of the law. But it's in the mutual interest of the farmer and the farm worker for good labor practices. That's going to benefit both of them. It's going to improve productivity and lead to better conditions. But there are many abuses we've seen in farm workers' housing conditions, etc. Um, Department of Labor has done well to double, almost almost double its inspected levels. But again, that's not enough. We need to do much more, including on our front as organized labor. Um, I think the last thing, Honorable Chair, is that um, on the comprehensive social security issue that you had raised, we're, we're waiting for the Department of Social Development and Cabinet to retable the plan. The Department of Social Development had withdrawn the plan last year, the proposals, and they committed to coming forward. We hope it will happen soon because it is something that needs to be re reviewed um, significantly. There's a lot of duplications that need to consolidate and need to make sure the missing uh, elements don't fall through the cracks. But I think let me stop there, Chair, uh, given the time pressures. Thanks. Thank you. Amanda Lamobi, please. Um, thank you, Chair. I think the only thing we want to touch on is about public consultations. We are happy that this committee acknowledges that these consultations are important. And it would be great if we have, we get commitments from both this committee and treasury about how they will work on improving uh, the accessibility of uh, these public hearings and consultations. And another thing, Honorable Chair, we are fully behind the issues raised by the Women Women's on Farms project and can 100% say they are not generalizing. These are issues that exist and have existed for so long and just like uh, Honorable Matthew Parks has said, they need there are laws that need to be you know to be followed, laws that need to be put in place to um, fight issues like these. Um, thank you, Chair. Thank you. Then we move to the last one. Um, over to you, Clara. Is it Cara? Okay. Cara, are you there? <laughs> Thank you very much for the positive feedback. We note the Labour Committee and the uh, meeting within that, and we will follow up on that. Um, in terms of uh, women on farms, these comments we are making, are un they are unfortunately not general. They come from um, continued labour research, and it is a systemic problem. Farm workers face abuse on farms because they are closed systems, and despite the law, um, if a farmer decides to change the law, that is the policy, that is the legal framework. They have that kind of power. But we welcome working with everyone. We work with the farm, uh, the farm workers, we work with the unions, we work with Vinpro, we work with Prepare Trade. So we, we have welcome anyone, as they say, 
the, the better the quality of the labor conditions, the, the better the quality for farm workers. So, um, but in terms of generalization, I wouldn't like to speak because I don't know as much. I'm going to hand back to Louise to speak about, is it true that this is an, an isolated case of assault? Yes. I mean, Louise, what time? That is what happens in places. That is the first time. I see the first time that I hear of abuse. There is a lot of place workers there where they hear abuse. So we want to go end the end of the day, but we want to go to the end of the day. Ons voelt bij ongelukkig. En het maakt ons allemaal zeer om te zien die boeren op huis oors, omdat dat spleerling is. So, yeah, so unfortunately it's not a generalization. It's a systemic problem and we welcome any support we can do and we can get from any institution to address these issues. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, that said, we more or less trying to um, close. Sorry, yes, coming. This is Eunice from Gila. There were a few yeah, sure. comments that I would like oh, to Oh, yes, speak. of course. You, we missed you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Um, so just to, um, with a comment that um, Honorable Member Dennis said with regards to the uh, reference for the study that I was referring to, the reference, the full reference list is in our submission, which we submitted. So our full submission, written submission, it has all the references. We didn't include it here just because of time we know that it's a bit of an issue and just a point that i wanted to clarify that he might indicate that indicated as a contradiction is that it's not a contradiction in fact we what we're saying is that if the health promotion levy was sitting at on 20 percent and this year then there would have been a revenue of 2 billion rand for the year of 2022 and just moving on to the comments from honorable member Meletzani. Um, about the school nutrition national program is that firstly we'd like to acknowledge the government's efforts and the importance of the program because you know for many children this is the only meal they get so the we also saw during the pandemic when schools were closed just the the impact that this had so we really recognize this program and it's very important and we work with one of our coalition members which is an organization called equal education, and we help them enforce the norms and standards of the kind of food that are given to children to ensure that this food is not just a food which, which is empty in terms of nutrition, but in fact is good quality food, which is nutritious. And just in closing, um, you know, policy members, as policy members, you have the evidence in your hands. And what is important for us is for you to act in the interest of the people's health. Thank you very much. Yeah, just before I call upon the coach to say a few words as we draw to a close, uh, uh, just some quick things. One is uh, uh, Matthew, or Honorable Matthew, as you were referred to now. Uh, presumably, you were taking up these issues with the Public Enterprises Portfolio Committee, the huge job losses. But members, can we please consider putting that in our report, our concern about these job losses? We may not all agree on the formulation. We can see if we can find some consensus. Otherwise... Uh, we, we will decide how to, how to shape that. Secondly, the shareholder management bill. I mean, this is where, you know, it's appalling, the role of the executive. I used to chair for my sense public enterprises from 2005 to early 2007. And at that stage, Alec Irwin brought the first draft of the shareholder management bill to, to, to Parliament. Now look at it, it's 2007. It's now 2022. 
14 years later, we don't have a shareholder management board. By the way, that draft was very impressive, Matthew. I mean, really, it was quite progressive and consultative and so on. I don't know what the new bill will be, but that too is a matter the Public Enterprises Committee should be harassed by you and others. But I'll also raise it with Kaya when I get the time. Uh, here, you know, this thing about Matthew raises about portfolio committees looking at their budgets of their ministries and departments. They don't have hearings, unlike us. That's true, actually. In fact, that issue has been put on the agenda about 15 years ago. There are one or two committees that have done that, especially when it comes to controversial issues. Nothing stops a portfolio committee from having hearings on the budget. In fact, that was encouraged three terms ago or something before 2009 by one of the chief whips as well. Mm-hmm. Then on the accessibility of hearings that Mandela Mobi keeps raising, correct? I think that we ourselves are vulnerable but we do try to advertise in the indigenous languages and so on. Unfortunately, I think because of budget constraints, we haven't done it in the last year or so. I don't know. The committee secretaries can give you an answer if you write to them. Uh, and that's a matter that I think Treasury should answer on Friday. I take it, before I hand over to the co-chair, that there's no objection to us asking National Treasury and SARS to use the majority of Friday's time responding to the SARS issues. The second thing we can think about is bringing the ombudsperson either to a joint meeting or at one of your quarterly meetings on Scott's side. That said, I'm handing over to, to, to the co-chair, and I want to end by saying from my side, I really am very impressed also, if I may say so, and I really thank you all for this, not just for the quality of the inputs, but for the way you manage your time, very productively and efficiently, it's been the best set of public hearings in that sense of how within 10 minutes or at most 11 minutes, you got through so much. So thank you for the excellent uh, cooperation we've had uh, from you, civil society, and from members too, by the way. Okay, over to you, Joe. Um. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Comrade Eunice, uh, colleagues, uh, stakeholders who came here for public uh, uh, participation. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, just to echo the sentiment of the chairperson, Comrade Eunice, um, we welcome submission by stakeholders. And uh, this actually enhances. Uh, the concept of uh, public uh, participation, which is uh, a best fit uh, definition for the South African legislative uh, uh, sector. Uh, Public participation is a two-way communication and um, collaborative uh, problem-solving mechanism. So it's 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 a mutual process. As uh, lawmakers, we benefit a lot when uh, you as stakeholders engage us on what we are doing in Parliament. It enhances our capacity to play an oversight role on the executive, uh, because the goal is to achieve the representative and a more acceptable uh, decision-making process. Uh, By so doing, Uh, I'm also delighted that uh, this year we also have a a stakeholder 
coming from the farm workers uh, sector. Uh, all these years we have been complaining that uh, this exercise, uh, it looks like it's more elitist. It's only those who, uh, in the past, it was only those who were able to fly to come to Cape Town. And uh, in the past two years, it was like it was only those who have got uh, access uh, to IT gadgets. Uh, but today, uh, we have uh, those who come from the farm workers. Of course, the other time we have the, some old ladies uh, coming from, uh, I think it was Peter Marisbeck, and those coming from the former uh, Transkai raising the issue of pensions. So uh, I will appeal to uh, the support team that uh, even the way we advertise, we should no longer advertise on newspapers and uh, radios that are only accessible to you and me who can buy those papers. I think uh, support team, let's make sure that uh, when we put advert next time, it should also reach out uh, to uh, media houses, community uh, newspapers, which are out there uh, in Dansani, uh, Malamlele, uh, and uh, and uh, 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 place in the northern of KwaZulu uh, uh, Natal. Uh, of course, the minister has presented uh, a positive budget with all the challenges, because uh, the, the economy is not growing as we expected to create jobs. Instead, it has shared jobs. The issue of load shedding is a serious concern uh, to us because it has got a serious impact on the economy, more especially on the uh, small businesses. In most cases, when you are around town or in the villages or in the townships, when the electricity goes off, uh, small businesses, uh, closes the door. And uh, only those which are big enough, which can afford the generators that can run for hours and hours. So what about uh, SMEs which cannot afford a generator? It means they can't operate for those hours and they lose revenue. This is a serious matter that the government has to attend to. And we don't understand up to now where the problem lies because we keep on getting uh, all sorts of stories and it is not acceptable. Uh, as we have received a positive budget last week, I see this week, Chairperson, that there's going to be an increase on the price of petrol. Uh, I'm not very sure. I just saw something on the media. Uh, it's going to undo all what the minister has said, because once the price of petrol goes up, it's going to trigger uh, food inflation, school fees, more especially those kids, uh, parents who take kids to private schools, uh, is going to increase. Uh, transport is going to increase. Even the 90 rent that uh, has been added to the social grant uh, for Gogos and others uh, is going to come to zero because once the price of uh, petrol goes up, it triggers everything. So this is a matter that we have to follow up. If you remember, the minister said, Minister of Finance said, that is going to have a bilateral with the Minister of Energy. The sooner they attend to the issue, of petrol and load shedding and other related matters, uh, 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 the better. The issue of debt, of course, is also uh, dampening the spirit. Uh, it doesn't look like we are even, government is containing the debt uh, service costs. As of this year, I think it has gone beyond the 300 billion mark. 
And uh, it's a very serious setback because that was the money which was supposed to go uh, to education, uh, 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 subsidize uh, uh, up-and-coming uh, farmers and uh, uh, create jobs uh, for young people. So it's a serious challenge. Uh, we welcome the increase on the infrastructure. We hope, because I saw yesterday when PBO and FFC presented that uh, Department of Public Works and Infrastructure is still working on the uh, infrastructure plan. But this government was in place from 1994. So it's unacceptable that uh, departments keep on working on plans as if uh, the government has been there yesterday. People are looking for jobs out there. Uh, the sooner uh, Treasury talks to some of these departments, uh, the better, because at the end, we see money being uh, rolled over. Uh, an increase on NESFAS is welcome because it's going to alleviate the burden, more especially on the parents who are from the poor background. So they are, I mean, their uh, uh, children will be able to access higher education. Uh, Comrade Matthews, uh, this thing of lifestyle audit, I don't know what is it all about. We as uh, parliamentarians, for instance, on an annual basis, we have to do disclosure. And there is a full-time dedicated office that works on a, a disclosure for members of uh, parliament. If I, as Joe Maswangani, does not disclose certain information, I'm doing businesses somewhere, uh, they will be able to find out because they have developed uh, that uh, system. And also above that, remember, we are also taxpayers. We have to disclose everything to SARS when we do tax returns. And if it is found out that uh, you didn't disclose certain information or income, uh, the consequences are heavy in parliament and in parliament and uh, also with SARS. So because I hear this thing being hammered time and again, that is like all politicians are corrupt. They need to be uh, audited from time to time. And when we apply for loans, for instance, in the banks, you are subjected to what you call political exposed person. It's a rigorous process uh, to check on your background and what else you are doing. So I wanted to clarify that so that it should not look like there are laws for politicians and there are laws for other people. We are subjected to the same laws that other members of society and citizens are subjected to. But we believe also that uh, the cut on the tax, and more especially corporate income tax, and no increase on PIT and other tax categories, uh, will go a long way, I believe, in uh, bringing the private sector on board, because uh, surely government has done something, uh, even under difficult circumstances, uh, to cut the CIT. And lastly, uh, Treasury, as you have said, Comrade uh, Eunice, on Friday, we have spent much time on the uh, uh, issue of tax. However, there are issues of economic growth that they have to tell the country where this government is going, because that is going to be the solution to some of the challenges that uh, we are facing. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Comrade Eunice. Uh, thanks to the other chairpersons, uh, Comrade Schenge, uh, uh, Comrade Digeledi, uh, uh, and the colleagues. Uh, in general, from all the four committees, the two standing and the two select. Comrade Joe, uh, I don't know um, if you can, but we. Thank you. Thanks very much.
Maybe you could turn your video off. Oh, there you are. Okay. Are you done, Comrade Joe? Yes. Oh, you want me to close the meeting. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> okay, meeting closed. Thank you all. I think the staff know we're staying behind for a few minutes. Thank you. Long live the joint chairs. <laughs> Long, Long live, live Comrade Noxie. And Long live. Malubongo. I uh, see uh, there's somebody and, who's and going to leave this seat for, for, for Honorable Matthew to come in. Yeah, Honorable Matthew. Honorable Matthew. <laughs> Good enough. You know what? You attend more meetings than some of our committee members, you know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Joe, I used to always tell Linda and so of the business day, right? Hey, she's there on time, nine o'clock for meetings or 10 o'clock, right? And she comes to every meeting of the committee, even on a Friday, on a rare Friday, we meet on Friday <laughs> afternoon. So I told her, diligent, eh? Diligent, meetings. diligent. Yeah, your attendance at meetings is better than all of us, including the chair. <laughs> anyway, Matthew, you qualify to be an honorable member now, representing Kosatu yeah. as a political party. Yeah. We should caucus Kosatu. We should caucus Yeah, Kosatu. yeah, yeah. Sub, 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 okay, thanks. So, everybody's leaving. In Kululeko, are you going to lead this discussion? Because I don't know what it's about. No, there's our co chairperson. So, one of you will have to lead this. Um, Can we just wait for everybody to go? I think Saraj is still here. Esther must remain behind. Professor Rousseau, if he can exit. Is there anything very confidential in what you're going to say? Nothing confidential, Chairperson. Well, just let's get to... going then. Yeah, I think Joe, should we get going? Yeah. We don't know yes. what's about being explained. Yeah. Yes, Chair. Um, you were not uh, in that Thursday meeting. Oh, yes. So... Yeah, I had a family issue. Yeah, my mother. Yeah. So a decision was taken there that we must go ahead with, uh, with placing adverts on parliamentary website. Uh, the information that was uh, presented by parliament on that meeting was not sufficient. Um, so the chairperson was going to give parliament another opportunity to come and brief uh, both committees. So what happened on the after we were placed advert on the news on the parliamentary website, we did not receive any comment, chairperson which means uh, this meeting of the 3rd of March, which, which is tomorrow, will fall away. So we wanted to consult with you, Chaperson, in amending this program. What we are coming uh, with now is that we give Parliament another opportunity to come and brief the committees on the 9th of March. Uh, hopefully, they will give adequate information this time and the both committee adopted their reports on the 15th of March, which uh, Chairperson Maswangani will um, will help Parliament because we need to finish this regulation by the before the end of March. So if we adopt our report by the 15th of March, we will still be on time. That is what we wanted from you, Chairpersons. Joe, what's your view, Chairperson? Uh, 
I think it's cut off. Comrade Joe, are you okay. there? Oh, sorry. Technology can be a problem. No, no, it's not a problem. Um, the other time, uh, okay, you were not there, Comrade Junis, at that meeting. I think it was an NA site. We had a meeting with Comrade uh, Frolik of uh, uh, chairpersons. And uh, in that meeting, they were taking stock of the uh, outstanding uh, uh, bills that are supposed to come to parliament. Uh, no, 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 that are supposed to be processed. And uh, amongst others, uh, it is uh, this bill that uh, is flighted here. And uh, there's another one which comes from uh, members of the opposition. He, Lewis has left. And there's another one that comes from Lee's that uh, we as a SCOF have to also attend to. So it was pointed out that uh, we have to attend to, to, to this bill as it has been uh, 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 referred to us. Uh, thanks. Yeah, no, I agree with the co-chair. There's no problem. I think you should go ahead. Both of us agree. Is there anything else? No, Chairperson, that's about it. Okay, uh, so we're done. No problem, Chair. Okay, before we part, uh, Comrade Joe, I just checked whose responsibility of the coordinators um, for, for the fiscal framework report this year. Esther says it's on our side, so Esther will coordinate. Uh, so basically, if Esther, if Nkululeko, you can send out a letter quickly, just to remind people to make their submissions of half a page to two thirds of a page by 12 o'clock on Friday. And the same process as previously will apply before you send the draft to the two chairs which is usually on a Sunday evening or a Monday morning. Uh, and Monday morning is fine if you're getting a better quality report. You need to all have approved of the report as it were. Finally, Esther takes overall responsibility. I don't know, Coach, if you want to say anything in that regard. I think Mr. Asomaya has a connection problem. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's, it's okay, Comrade Yunis. Yeah, so we're agreeing the same method. Yeah, Esther, you're responsible, and then you'll confer with us as need be. Okay, thanks, everybody. Keep up. Bye then. Bye, Jim.